Welcome to the Silver Screen Guide Podcast, where we discuss films from every genre. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the podcast. Welcome listeners to a very special podcast for October 31st. This is our Halloween special. Last year we reviewed John Carpenter's 1978 Halloween. This year we felt like we would go back to what some call the very original slasher the absolute classic Alfred Hitchcock film, Psycho, yes. starring Anthony Perkins as Norman Bates, Vera Miles, John Gavin, Janet Lee, Martin Balsam, John McKintry, and a little tidbit that many may not know, Patricia Hitchcock. Mm-hmm. She does have a very prominent role in this movie. She gets a good amount of screen time. Yep. And this is uh, Hitchcock's daughter as well. Yes, that should be clarified. And when we get to that scene, we'll point out who she right. is. Right. But uh, Hitchcock's daughter, and I knew that before, but I forgot about it. I actually had no idea, and I've seen this movie quite a number of times. I had no idea until this viewing that it, that was Hitchcock's daughter. The film was written by Joseph Stefano and based off of the novel by Robert Block. Now, Joseph Stefano really didn't do anything else noteworthy, as far as I could tell. Uh I believe he wrote the TV movie Psycho 4. Okay. And he also did some writing for the remake of Psycho, the Vince Vaughn. Oh, yeah, the the shot-for-shot remake. Yes, and we're not reviewing that right now. Yeah, or any other sequels at this time yet either. Yes, this is just a Halloween special. This is not kicking off the retrospective. At the at the moment, anyway. And this film was released September 8th, 1960. Originally, it was rated M. M for mature. Just, no. No. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I know that in our movie ratings discussion we did way back in the day, we talked about the rating system and how it's evolved from, like, the Hayes' code up until now with the modern system. Um, and yeah, M was basically our R rating now, essentially. And this movie had a lot of flack before it was released in theaters from the the rating police or the, I think it's either called the production code or something like that. Go back and listen to our podcast. It's just the MPAA discussion. Exactly. At the time, it was it's basically this giant, this big group. They review a film and they give it a score. They say, hey, you could release this or not, essentially. So Right. So it was originally rated M... And I believe at the time, make sure to go back and listen to the MPAA discussion. There was only about two ratings. Yeah. One that was just for general audiences. There's no problems with it. And then there was this one, M, that there needed to be some sort of discretion advised. Right. And most of Hitchcock's uh, movies were rated before a modern rating system. But I believe pretty much all of them that are applicable, not including like, the silent black and white films, of course, but they've been re-rated to the modern rating. So you'll see a lot of them are PG-13 or PG, and I believe there's only two of a Hitchcock's film that are are rated R, this and Frenzy. There may be one more, but don't quote me on that. Right, and it probably could have just come about when they released it all on home media, too. They had to put a rating on it or something. That's my guess. Right. So now you will, when you pick it up, you will notice that it 
it's not rated M because that's not a rating anymore. It's now rated R. Right. Appropriately, right. I would say. And I would be remiss if we did not mention who scored and did the cinematography. Yeah, we were discussing this right before the podcast, and we didn't realize that the at least the guy who did the score was in a lot of other things. You'll notice Bernard Herman also did the score for Hitchcock's Marnie, which may be my favorite Hitchcock film. Yeah, that one I haven't seen. In fact, the two that I have seen have both been at your house for the first time. Rope and this one. Uh, Rope's incredible. Yes. I really do want us to do a Hitchcock retrospective. Absolutely. Someday. Absolutely. I think it's on the list of things that we want to do eventually. He is just one of the best directors of all time. But but as we said, Bernard Herrmann uh, was a very prolific uh, composer, very, very prolific and uh, famous for a lot of things. He was actually nominated for four Academy Awards. Uh, Psycho was not one of them. Or, or was it? No, no, no. It didn't, even though I think it should have. Oh, yeah, it absolutely should have. So it's very interesting because Bernard Herrmann was uh, pretty well known and would continue to be well known. And they're still even using his compositions in movies today. Mm-hmm. If you go to his profile on IMDb, you'll see things uh, clear up to this year. But he did do the score to Citizen Kane, which is no surprise. Kind of a big name in cinema, if you could do the score for a movie like that. And actually, Citizen Kane was nominated in 1947, and Bernard Herrmann also was nominated for All That Money Can Buy. So he was nominated twice in the same category. Right. All That Money Can Buy won out over Citizen Kane. I can't speak to the score of All That Money Can Buy. And he was also nominated... For Anna and the King of Siam, which I don't even know what that is. Yeah, neither do I. I think I haven't heard of that one. In 1977, he was also, again, this is amazing. He was nominated twice in the same category. And posthumously, I might add. So he had already died when he was nominated for Taxi Driver and Obsession, which is a Brandy Palma film, who Brandy Palma did Scarface. Those two came out... The year after he died. I think he died in 1975. Yes. So that's pretty amazing. So he has an amazing track record. And the cinematographer is John Russell. And from what I saw, he really didn't do anything. Okay. Note. This was his claim to fame and everything else was TV or... Gotcha. I don't know. Gotcha. I wonder... That's kind of interesting because I know we'll talk about it, but I would have assumed this was was somebody who had a lot of experience, but apparently not. Yeah, uh, it he's not, was never very popular, hmm. it seemed like, even though he did an incredible job. Oh, yeah. yeah. And I'm sure Hitchcock really played a role in uh, some of the cinematography. Yeah, I'm sure he did. I'm sure he did. <laughs> this movie currently has an 8.5 on IMDb, and it is uh, number 33 in the top 250 films. Oof. Yeah, that's pretty, uh, that's pretty up there. That's pretty up there. That's very well regarded. Yeah. And as we mentioned, this film was actually nominated for four Academy Awards, but it did not win any Academy Awards. And it is a shame that Hitchcock never won an Academy Award. It is. And it's it's funny because now we look at back at his films now and everyone's just like, oh, man, Hitchcock, one of the greatest directors ever. And he never got an Oscar. I know. It's just, yeah, it's just kind of it's a travesty. A travesty. <laughs> yeah, it's a travesty. Yeah. Oxymoron, maybe. Yes. <laughs> As we said, Hitchcock was nominated for Best Director for Psycho. Yes. Janet Lee, who plays Marion Crane, was nominated for Best Actress. Uh, John Russell, nominated for Best Cinematography. 
and I was also nominated for best art direction and set direction. Interesting. And the only like prominent award, I guess, this movie did win. Uh, Janet Lee won a Golden Globe for her acting. That's fair. So, I'm kind of surprised yeah. though that Anthony Perkins didn't get a nod at all. I am really surprised about that too. Now, in preparation for this review, I did read a book called The Moment of Psycho by David Thomason, and that kind of gave me some insight, like the, the background and, and stuff like that, making of the film for Psycho here. So I'll be popping in and out, talking about this, but this is something that he brings up, is that at the end, it's kind of a travesty that the music and Anthony Perkins both did not get an Oscar, and he was mm-hmm. like, why? These are the things that make the film as important as it is, and he's just asking why on some parts of the book so it's very surprising okay the only like nomination that i'm surprised at is janet lee because she's not in the movie very much yeah and her performance is good but i mean and she didn't win for best actress right and i have no idea who won in 1960 or who she was up against it's very surprising like you said anthony perkins who did a great job and Bernard Herrmann, they didn't get Oscar nominations for this, but Janet Lee got it for Best Actress. So Right, yeah. I don't know. And it's kind of interesting, too, because the movie Exodus came out the same year that Psycho did, and it won the Oscar for Best Score. And I have heard the Exodus score, and it is very good. What's Exodus? Exodus, it's basically like a, a biblical movie. Are you talking um, about Ten Commandments? No, no, no. It's like a movie actually called Exodus. It's, the Ten Commandments came out of uh, 59, I think. This one came out in 60, and it beat out Psycho. Since Psycho was not nominated for Best Score, it didn't really beat it out, but it got Best Score for that year. Really? Yeah, and I have heard the score for it. It is a very good score, but it's not as... I guess I can't always speak to the movie because I haven't seen it, but I know that the Her- that Herman score is one of the most influential scores, if not the, one of the most famous as well, which I, is why I find it very convenient or surprising, at least, that it didn't get uh, at least a nod interesting yeah. i had never heard of exodus i mean i knew there was the recent ridley scott right interpretation slash adaptation right yeah i mean it, at the very least i would i can't speak to the movie because i haven't seen it but at the very least i would recommend the score it's a very good score okay mm-hmm. now i would say for at the time the it did very well at the box office oh yeah yeah it, it did in fact the box office numbers and well, I'm sure we'll definitely talk about this a bit more and a little bit later, is that this movie not only had good numbers, but also had touched cinema in a, a completely different way. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, the budget for this film... Okay, Hitchcock did have to utilize a smaller budget. Yes. Because the studio... I can't remember the exact details, but they did, and that is also one of the reasons why it, it shot in black and white. Yes. Uh, was for uh, budgetary concerns and a tv crew was also used to shoot the movie right for the budget according to box office mojo this doesn't really sound right this sounds kind of high i it could be wrong but i i believe box office mojo said the budget was uh eight hundred six thousand. Hmm, that's pretty high pretty close to a million which that doesn't seem right i'm wondering if that's like adjusted for inflation or something right yeah, and I know that the book that I read definitely goes into detail about this. And it says that the reason why Hitchcock was given such a low budget is because when he pitched it to Paramount, they were like, 
well, uh, no, we don't want to have anything to do with this because for the time, this was very gruesome. It's a very gruesome movie for the 60s. And so when he pitched it to Paramount, they were like, uh, I don't know about this. And so he struck a deal with Paramount that Hitchcock would get 60% of the movie and Paramount would get the other 40%. And because of that, he had to use as little budget as possible to make it. And that's probably why he ended up using the TV crew and stuff like that. Since it was considered so risque. In fact, he had to actually make compromises. Like he knew a guy, it was, it was in the production code team that would let him through with this movie and all sorts of stuff. And it's it's kind of crazy, the backstory behind this, because it almost didn't get released at all. And I can see that because 1960, that's a pretty conservative time for cinema. I mean, compared, especially comparative to today. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, I mean, oh my goodness, we're in the October season and we're getting movies that are way way more violent yeah then psycho was definitely part of that that made these films the way that they are now too because i don't we'll get into it but especially the shower scene like the, i mean there's no surprising everyone knows the, the famous shower scene but that scene in the theater when it was shown was so surprising and so gruesome for that time that that was one of the things that left the biggest impact on the audience was just that one scene alone by how surprising it was and how gruesome it was too I'm sure. And did you hear that when the movie came out, Hitchcock was making a huge deal and he gave like strict orders to all theaters to not let anybody into the theater after the film had started. And there were signs out there talking about it and it was just too shocking mm -hmm. or you didn't, he didn't want to ruin the surprise. And it was a big deal. Yeah, the book does talk about that too. And one of the things that was kind of like a byproduct of them essentially locking audiences out of the theater if it had already started, is the audience also felt as if they couldn't leave. So they usually, for the most part, from what the book kind of brings about, is that the audience that, when it's once they entered the theater, they just didn't leave because they didn't think they could. That's quite the experience. Yeah. I, I think it's awesome that, I mean, it's incredible marketing. Oh, absolutely. It would be really interesting to be a part of something like that today. Where they're like, no, you can't, you're, we're not going to admit you after it right. started. And studios are so like money grubbing now, they probably wouldn't agree Yeah, to that. Yeah, their sales would go down. <laughs> I know that in when I went to go see Blade Runner 2049 for the second time, a dude who sat next to me just kept getting up and leaving and coming back with food. And oh, I was gosh. just like, <laughs> like he would got up probably like four or five times. People don't appreciate cinema today. <laughs> <laughs> or we're just nerds. Yes. Uh, according to Box Office Mojo, though, it did gross $32 million, which is really good. That's really good. Yeah, adjusting for gross, it would be $381 million. That's a lot of money, even with today's which standards. Is awesome. That's amazing. Yeah. That's great. And I know that because of this, because of the huge success that Hitchcock had with Psycho, Universal gave him his own studio to work in. Like it's, It was, at the time, considered one of the largest studios ever. And it had everything he needed wow. as a director, just because he's just because he was able to make this film work and stuff like, and things like that. I didn't know. Yeah, that. that's something the book also talks about. So, Alan, have you seen the film Peeping Tom? I have not. No. Okay. Peeping Tom came out the same year as Psycho, and Peeping Tom and Psycho. There's kind of a debate between the two. Did the book go into that at all? No, it didn't. Okay. It might have mentioned Peeping Tom, but it didn't really go into detail. Okay. 
Well, Peeping Tom, I was just checking when it did come out in the United Kingdom in 1960, but the United States, it, it came out a little later. Gotcha. But regardless, there's a debate that says that Psycho started uh, kind of the slasher genre, and there's also a debate that Peeping Tom did. Uh, okay. Peeping Tom was shot in color. And it is about a man who murders women, and he uses his film camera to record their murders and capture their, like, terror as it occurs. Uh, I'd love to see it. You know, that's also a pretty racy uh, concept for a film in 1960. Oh, yeah. So I've always heard about it, and there's always been kind of a little bit of contention, like, which movie really kicked off this, you know, slasher genre that was really kind of, I would say revived with john carpenter's halloween yeah i know i've heard of that movie but i just haven't I, I didn't really know much about it but that does sound kind of interesting i wonder if it's uh like the slasher genre started in america from psycho and then in the in like european countries or worldwide with peeping tom but yeah that's really interesting i didn't know that yeah and john carpenter takes a number of cues especially in halloween mm-hmm. with with the camera and, of course, this is what that book he read talks about is its influence on cinema. So, like, if we know Psycho, know Halloween, pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. And it's kind of funny because at the end of the book, it talks about a lot of really, really well-known films like Halloween. And even it goes as far as 007 with, this, with the first film, Dr. No, oh, wow. and how that was impacted because of Psycho. And because those came out after Psycho, you know. Yeah. And yeah, it goes in deep. It talk, kind of talks about it, like what the similarities are between that and Psycho, and why this came to be. And let me pull up the list here real quick. I'll tell you what kind of movies were all that were that were mentioned in the book. I didn't get them all down. I just got all the ones that were that I knew. Okay, so I have Bonnie and Clyde, A Clockwork Orange, Frenzy, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Taxi Driver, Halloween, The Shining, The Silence of the Lambs, Pulp Fiction, and then the remake of. Psycho in 1998 with Vince Vaughn as Norman Bates. And that's just a handful, but yeah. that and like a bunch of other movies were all impacted just because of Psycho and how how groundbreaking it was for showing things that had never been shown before. Hmm, interesting. Yeah. I can see a number of those definitely being impacted by Psycho. Right. A couple of those I'd be very interested to know the reason why, what, what comes from it. Right. You know, like Pulp Fiction, for instance, or how did that influence it? So that would be interesting to look into. If you can get your hands on the moment of Psycho like that I did, like I was in just in my library here at my college, and I just saw it and I picked it up. And it was right before I, re- I remember that we're doing a review on Psycho this week, and so I finished it. It's a really easy read. I finished it in like two days. I'm a slow reader. Oh, wow. So, yeah, it does give some pretty good insight. The first half of the book, it, it kind of goes through scene by scene and like kind of talks about it through as they kind of all weave together. But then the second half of the book is the most important part because it talks about its impact on cinema and then like the impact it left on Hitchcock as a director and then some other controversies around it. And it's really interesting, especially that second half. And it's called The Moment of Psycho? Yeah, by David Thomason. Oh, okay. I'll, yeah. I really got to check into that. I'd love to read that. Well, I can definitely see Psycho influencing uh, The Silence of the Lambs mm-hmm. because The Silence of the Lambs kind of draws from like a few different uh, murderers. 
Uh, one of them is Ed Gein, and actually the book Psycho, written by Robert Block. Robert Block heard about the story of Ed Gein, and of course, Texas Chainsaw Massacre was influenced right. by Ed Gein with the skin lamps and weird stuff. Yeah. But yes, yeah, so Silence of the Lambs, I can definitely see that because in the book, uh, Norman Bates is kind of trying to make like a woman's suit. Right. For uh, kind of to, to more so be like his mother, and that is uh, really big in The Silence of the Lambs. So there's a lot of similarities there. And, and we did go over that film, too. We discussed that for, I think, two and a half hours. That's an amazing discussion and analysis of the film. You, you really don't want to miss, especially if you enjoyed Psycho. Definitely uh, go watch Silence of the Lambs and then check out our review. It's a part of our Hannibal Lecter retrospective series, which is complete, so you can listen to all the films. Minus Hannibal Rising, because we're not going to review that. Cause yeah. We? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or half of the Silence of the Lambs, the sequel that came out with Jodie Foster. I forget the name of it. Oh. Hannibal? Yeah, that's the one. Yeah. Ridley Scott dropped the ball on that, but we'll let you listen to that to find out uh, our thoughts on it. But yeah, we have podcasts discussing all of that stuff. There's a podcast about it. We'll let you decipher that. Well, uh, listeners, I want to make sure before I jump into the plot... I'm kind of going to go by, even though this film has been out for, like, what, 50-plus years, 60-plus years? Yeah, it's. I was talking to my brother the other day, and we were just like, yeah, it's, see, released in 1960, it's 2017, that's uh, 40, 50, 57 years, almost 60 years old. Yeah, so which is, it's crazy because it's over half a century old. Mm-hmm. But regardless, this film is a classic. It's a masterpiece. And if you're coming to this for the first time, if it hasn't been spoiled for you yet, uh, don't let us spoil it for you. So there's no better time than uh, right now to go check it out and then come back and listen to our thoughts on it so you can learn all about the movie. We've we've really laid the groundwork for you, given you a lot of great details. But before we spoil anything, uh, going further, make sure to check out that movie. Without further ado... Here's the plot summary for those of you who uh, want a refresher on it, who haven't seen it in a while. And like I said, spoilers from here on out. Marion Crane is a young unmarried secretary who is carrying on a love affair with Sam Loomis, a divorced man who is frustrated with his lack of mobility in life for getting ahead. He's very frustrated. Marion works uh, at a real estate business and is entrusted to put $40,000 into the bank for a client. Today, it's still a lot of money, but back then, that was a lot. Yeah, that's a lot of cash. But instead of putting the money in the bank, she toys with the idea of taking the money and running away with Sam. And that is exactly what she does. Except, before she reaches Sam, she is forced to stop at Bates Motel due to inclement weather. The motel is now off the main road and run by a young, good-looking man named Norman Bates. Marion soon realizes Norman lives with his mother in a gothic-esque looming home directly above the motel. In a shocking turn of events, the mother runs from the house to stab Marion during her shower. The shocked Norman hides the body, but finds Marion is in fact a wanted woman. See, Marion's boss noticed her driving in her car when she told him she was going home due to not feeling well. Marion's boss also comes to find the money was never deposited in the bank. Marion's younger sister, Lila, comes to the small town only 15 miles from Bates Motel, where Sam lives. 
a third party also becomes involved with tracking down the missing woman, in the form of private investigator Milton Arbogast. Arbogast, or as the, the police chief says, Arbogast. <laughs> or as some people say, Arbogast. Arbogast questions Norman, who seems to be hiding something. When Arbogast sneaks into Norman's house, he is slashed across the face and stabbed to death multiple times by Norman's mother. Becoming frustrated with the lack of answers and disappearing persons, Lila and Sam wake up the local sheriff to question him about the Bates Motel and the mysterious woman who may know something about the disappearances. The sheriff and his wife become confused since Norman hasn't taken a wife and his mother has been dead for 10 years. In fact, she murdered her boyfriend and committed suicide by poisoning both of them. Bewildered and confused, Sam and Lila pose as husband and wife as they go to the Bates Motel to sneak around and find clues. Lila is able to sneak through the house and find many confounding scenes. Meanwhile, Norman catches on to their ploy, knocks Sam over the head, and runs to his house. Lila is forced to retreat to the basement where she finds Mrs. Bates. Except the unresponsive Mrs. Bates is actually a mummified corpse. Norman busts down the stairs in full mother regalia as his split personality has fully taken over. Right before the knife comes down onto Lila, Sam overpowers Norman, choking him out. Back at the police station, Norman's psychiatric condition is explained. And in a truly frightening internal monologue, Norman and his mother's personality has come fully undone. Due to a full confession from Norman's mother, Marion's car is pulled out of the swamp as credits roll. Quite a, uh, a very interesting plot, especially the character of Marion. I mean, we'll get there, but it's, it's not your most conventional plot you would ever think of to see. No, it's really not. And as we said... Marion is the main character that it's told from her point of view for the first half or possibly even quarter yeah. of the film. And it's very interesting. The movie opens with an incredible title sequence mm -hmm. and incredible music, as we've talked about. And I, I just love how these lines and you see the psycho title card and like the words become like fractured. Right. Yeah. To like represent the fracturing of norman's mind it's just so incredible yeah it's it's really interesting because and i know that this opening scene in the book kind of talks about this is that the this opening scene is very much like we're peeping into a private conversation i mean although it is after the fact that it's very clear that they just had got done having having sex and that at what we're seeing is after the fact but it's still a very private conversation and the book kind of talks about how we're at this point in the movie, we're like invading their personal space. And it, yeah. And, it, and after reading the book and watching the movie again after that, I was like, yeah, this is a little bit unsettling, not like scary, but it's just like we're watching this couple who are definitely having an affair, but it's like they're watching their own personal lives in this one scene and like we're not supposed to be there. Right. And especially for 1960. We're involved in a very intimate scene, and it's also at a very specific time mm -hmm. in the middle of the day. It's, it takes place in Phoenix, Arizona, 
Friday on a Friday afternoon in December, which is odd because I'm used to December's not looking like summer. <laughs> right. Yeah. In Arizona, it's like hot all year round. <laughs> yeah. So. December 11th at 2.43 p.m. Mm-hmm. So it tells you that there's nothing really special about this time. But just on a Friday afternoon, this, you know, in a big old city, we begin with a shot of the city and then we slowly move from big to small like a macro kind of cosm of the city to a microcosm of these yeah, people's lives. Exactly. And we do, we peer into their private life and it's, it's pretty racy and I'm sure it's pretty shocking for audiences. The man has a shirt off, which I don't know if it's that surprising, but the woman's in her bra and she's in her bra a number of times. Yeah. And I'll, well, I'll talk about that a couple of times too, because the book brings up some interesting points, but yeah. And this is one of the scenes that was in question when they submitted it to for review is that this scene, the shower scene, and then there's uh, one more. I forget what it was. Um, those were the three scenes that were under some serious question because there's like, uh, we don't know if you can show this. I mean, it's very important for the movie, and we'll talk about that a little bit later when we get there, but for the time, yeah, this is pretty racy. I do wish that, I don't know, this is just me interjecting my own personal feelings, but it, it was interesting that there was like morals to society back then. Yeah. Whereas now the ratings have become so loose, and we we talk about this in our other MPAA discussion, Mm -hmm. but now this would be incredibly tame, and you would see something like this on TV. Oh, yeah. This would be like – this is PG-13 stuff right here. Oh, yeah. You you, you would see this on TV. It's it's very tame by today's standards. Mm -hmm. Uh, You would see much, much worse in today's film. So even though I am glad that this stuff made the cut – at the same time, I'm glad that there was like morals back then. Yeah. It, it's a totally different time in cinema, especially from today. Right. And it's also interesting, right after this scene, the book kind of brings this up, um, right after the opening scene happens and they and Marion and Sam split ways, we find out that Marion then has a headache, which is kind of strange to be having a headache right after you had just had sex. You know, you're not having, the character is not under tranquility. She's under some slight pain. I mean, very slight, so it's a headache, but still... She's not at peace, essentially. She has a headache. And the book thought that was kind of interesting. Yeah, and I can understand because she's really distressed. She's never been married. Sam, her lover, who lives, you know, half an hour away or something. No, no, more than that. Because she lives in Phoenix, Arizona, and she drives to California. Right. Some little town in California where he lives. And I'm not even sure if we know how they met. It doesn't say. Nevertheless, Sam has a lot of trouble in his life, and he's like, I can't even afford to marry you, and I'm poor, and can't even buy us a house. And and he's saying, yeah, he also mentions the alimony he has to pay to his ex-wife. And it just seems like they keep getting shut down at every corner, and she's like, I'm tired. She said, this is the last time that we're going to be together like this. She's like, I want us to have a respectable, honest relationship and stop sneaking around like this. Right. And it just so happens that she works at a, it looks like a, like a pretty small uh, real estate area. It's called Lowry Real Estate. Yeah. And she comes encounter with this guy, this very jerky, flirty guy named Mr. Cassidy and $40,000 falls into her lap. And it's kind of a moral question. It's like, okay, what if your life was really frustrated and kind of cruddy and you had the opportunity to do something immoral and get out of it, even though 
Mr. La- Mr. Cassidy is like, I never carry around more than I can afford to lose. Right. So it seems like if the money went missing, it really wouldn't be that big of a deal. Right. So it's kind of a moral dilemma she first encounters with this. Right. And it's definitely something that she considers for at least about about five minutes of the film as her just wondering, like, oh, yeah. should I or shouldn't I? You know, and she kind of gets an idea of, okay, I'm going to do it. And she kind of packs up her stuff and she gets in her car and she starts going. And then she has to stop because there's pedestrian crossing and she sees her boss and she had just told him she's going to leave to go home because she has a headache. And he like, at first he's like, Oh, Hey, you know, and she weighs back and then he stops and looks back and is like all worried and stuff. And then he of course turns around and keeps going, but he seemed, his face made him seem like he was just disappointed and of course, Marion kind of just looks back, and it's just like, "Oh no!" And then, of course, the music kicks in at that point. She starts driving, driving along again. But yeah, well, she did lie to him because a first of all, she took a long lunch, and then she comes back and she says, "After I go put the money in the bank, can I go home because I have a headache and I'm not feeling well?" Right. And he said, "Yeah, sure." But then a while later, he sees her driving around, which is inconsistent with her story. So. Of course, you know, he, he does look concerned and he probably, and he does seem to like kind of shrug it off like, oh, I'm sure it's no big deal, but it is kind of left up to question what he thinks. But yeah, Marion becomes increasingly paranoid about her actions. Yeah. And before we go any further, Hitchcock normally always does a cameo in all of his films. And this cameo, he's, he's it's funny. He's wearing a cowboy hat probably because he's in Arizona. Uh, look for him. His back is to the camera. And he's kind of in profile uh, right before Marion walks into uh, her real estate oh, office. Yeah. We see Hitchcock with a cowboy hat on and then we see his face kind of turn around as Marion walks by and we see the famous profile. And also uh, Marion's friend, it, the other secretary in the office is Patricia Hitchcock, mm-hmm. uh, Alfred Hitchcock's daughter. And she does a good job. She's got a number of lines and scenes and... Uh, the di- I gotta commend the dialogue so far and the writing, but it's uh it's really well done. Like I just love when Patricia Hitchcock comes over and she said he was flirting with you. He must have saw my ring and that's why I didn't flirt with me. And she's like, I take tranquilizers on my wedding. Teddy would have been furious. And I I really like the line even earlier when Sam is like, uh, I've always liked the line when he's like, okay, after we have dinner at your house with your sister, we can send little sister off to the movies and turn mama's picture to the wall yep and have a little love time and <laughs> yep always like that yeah yeah this this movie you know some people have a uh, superstition that older movies are just they're kind of cheesy and their dialogue's funny or whatever but this one at least in the dialogue department it's almost spot on like it feels yeah. so almost like a modern film now almost which is odd for me to say it, it is yeah and this movie, most films, especially back then, really relied upon the writing and dialogue because they didn't have the glamorous special effects to rely upon that a lot of times will just kind of try and distract audience members nowadays to keep them from realizing anything about the story. But this movie also relies upon visual storytelling. Absolutely. And I'm so impressed. And one of the most impressive visual storytelling scenes is when Marion is contemplating uh, what to do with the money. She's at her house. Technically, she still could go take it to the bank. Right. But she does have her suitcase out. So she's kind of debating what to do. And I love how it, like, keeps, it cuts from her to the money. It cuts from her to the money. 
and the, the music along with her expression and the camera work it's that visual storytelling where we don't need any dialogue right. to explain what's going on we right know what's going on and that movie does that really well exactly and one of the things i also wrote down in my notes for this scene alone is that the opening scene when we saw her in her underwear she was wearing white and this scene she's mm -hmm. wearing black which is kind of interesting how even though it's still a black and white film hitchcock is still straining to use that color to kind of make an impact on like her decisions and stuff like that and we can see that she's kind of degrading essentially in her character of should she or should she not? Because she can now live a new life with all this money, but is it morally correct? Is in this scene is what she's really debating. Wow, I didn't even pick up on that. Yeah, I noticed that this time, and I've seen this movie like four times, and Neat. I was like, yeah. So that's so cool. Well, something else we should mention is Janet Lee is Jamie Lee Curtis's mom. That I didn't know. Yeah. Wow. Interesting. Isn't that cool? That is and crazy. then Jamie Lee goes on to play in Halloween. That's crazy. I did not know that. Wow. Yes. And uh, uh, Janet Lee has a cameo in uh, Halloween H2O Interesting. with her daughter. Yeah. So look for that next time you watch Halloween H2O. So, yes, Marion is now, in her mind, I believe she is kind of on the run. And especially when she looks at this cop, she really has nothing to be afraid of, but she's so paranoid in her mind. Right. And the shot of the cop is just so amazing. I love that, like, really close-up. This movie utilizes a lot of close-up frames. Yes. It just frames their faces so close up. And I don't know. There is that intimidation from the cop, but then we also see how, how guilty she is. It's, right. It's really good. We can tell the cop is very, very suspicious of Marion. At first, she's just like, no big deal or anything. It's kind of strange that she stopped on the side of the road. But the more conversation that they have, the more suspicious he becomes. And then the more paranoid that Marion becomes, too. And, of course, this leads up to him. Ended up, he ends up following her to the car salesman where she gets her new car and drives off then, too. But, yeah, it, this scene is really interesting because it kind of goes to show that Marion is trying so hard to get out of there and more or less giving her maybe even more reason to keep going. That's a good point. I really appreciate how this movie takes the time to build suspense. Absolutely. I mean, we're talking about the master of suspense here, Alfred Hitchcock. So. Oh, yes. <laughs> oh, yes. Good point. And a lot of this is built through visual storytelling, but it's also built through the dialogue and how the characters interact with each other. Because when she's interacting with the car salesman, Right. Her her like guilt becomes increasingly obvious and the car salesman says this is the first time a customer customer has high pressured the salesman. She doesn't even want to check it out. She's like, Let me just get it and do it now and he's like, I'm sure you can prove that car is yours. She keeps looking at the police officer. It's so obvious. Uh and like I pointed out, this right. this scene has great dialogue that I wrote a number of lines down because I really like he when he like asks Absolutely. her about the price She's like, uh, and he's like, always have time to argue money. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it, this scene kind of seems kind of backwards, too, because she's wanting to get the car and get out of there when usually when you want to go buy a car, you kind of put a lot of thought into it to make sure that the car that you buy, you know, is the one that's going to last you as long as, it, as long as it needs to. And then you have the car salesman that kind of just wants to push it on you and, like, make you buy a car. But this is completely backwards. I love how he says... Uh, you can do whatever you have a mind to do, and being a woman, you will. <laughs> yeah. 
Love that line. <laughs> yes. And the book also kind of brings up an interesting point. This is the point of the movie when it's essentially the no turning back scene. And this mm. is now the no turning back scene in almost every movie is the decision that the main character makes that essentially pushes the plot along. And it's an irreversible decision that they have to end up facing later that it consequences. And this is the scene that is the no turning back scene when she decides that she's going to spend the money that she, the 40,000, some of the 40,000 that she has to buy a new car. Now she's put a dent into that money. And now she kind of can't, she can, she can, she'll try later to go back to Phoenix and try to make things right. But now there's been damage done. She could have gone back before and maybe little to no consequence would have happened. But now that she's made a dent in the money and have used some of it, uh, that's kind of an issue. So she decides at this point just to keep going. You know, before that she decided to do that, but now she has to. She's almost forced to. And she wants because now it's just not going to be the same. Now that she's used seven hundred dollars from the forty thousand. Yeah, and that would be really hard for her to pay that money back. Right, and it's also kind of interesting because this this film also has that theme of money is the root of all evil. You know. Oh, yeah. Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> greed. Yes, exactly. Greed. Well, I watched this with my dad and he brought up a really good point because I I kept I've always kind of questioned like if they would just if the cop would just say, you know, let me look in your purse or in your bags, then they'd find the money. And I mean, because she's so guilty. She is so yeah. guilty. She's clearly running from something. So she has done something wrong. Right. So and I'm I don't know. It's not nothing I've ever like really voiced, but something I've always like. She's so guilty. Why don't they just stop her? But my dad just brought it up. My dad's like, well, and I didn't even say anything, but he said, uh, you know, the Fourth Amendment prevents her from being searched. That's true. Yeah. So you cannot, you know, improper search and seizure of your items. We're, as Americans, have the right, you know, you, you just can't be stopped and searched at any time. And I'm like, well, that's actually a really good point. Yeah. Why she can't just be stopped. Because she's right. always like, don't I have a right to just buy a brand new car on the spot? And and she's incredibly forward with the police officer, like, and really just demanding, like, you're holding me up. I need to go. <laughs> and yeah. Just things you wouldn't say, but technically she has the right to say them and to get away with this. Yeah, and it's also kind of interesting, too, because... Um, yeah, I know that with the Fourth Amendment, usually unless there's probable cause, you can't just go in and look at somebody's purse. But there really wasn't much right. probable cause. She was just kind of suspicious. That's really all it was. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that, that's true. Yeah. Uh, but something that I really love that I think the movie nails is when she's driving along, there is this kind of like imagined conversations of what yeah. she's thinking is going on. And that's a really like nice peek into her thoughts and her like increasing paranoia because i don't believe that's actually how those conversations are going that's how she's imagining what's going on yeah she's making all this up yeah and it's brilliant that they chose to do that instead of cutting back right to those people and actually showing how it really went because that really would have undercut the tension uh but this is a nice way to keep the tension building right and uh when the rain starts that also kind of shows how, like, the path ahead is not clear anymore. Right, She's really yeah, not sure point. what to do. Also, if you'll notice, there's a very frantic uh, editing nature to this. Not frantic in the way we would think of nowadays, 
but especially as the rain increases, you'll notice that the camera keeps getting closer and closer to the windshield and closer and closer to her face. And right. It keeps cutting back and forth. And uh, I did actually write a, a short college paper over this movie, and that was one of the things that I talked about uh, was if you notice the editing choices, it's very reflective of her emotions. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And going off of that, too, the book kind of mentions something about – the rain and it's kind of interesting because it's raining but she's in a car and usually rain signifies like redemption or like being clean or being wiped of all your sins or something like that you know and mm-hmm. i know that in the shawshank redemption which isn't this isn't really a spoiler it's on the it's on the cover of the movie uh you see you see a character i'll put it that way you see a character being like rained on and it's like yeah. a, essentially him being washed of all the things he's done wrong and in psycho there are two times where they use rain in this kind of an aspect, and that's now and then when she steps in the shower. And the first mm. time, which is now, she's enclosed by a car, so she's not being washed, essentially. It's it's going around her because of the car. But then later, after she has that conversation with Norman, and she kind of changes his mind, and she says, oh, I'm going to head back to Phoenix, she's taking a shower, and she's, like, washing herself, essentially, of what she's, think- what she's done wrong. But, of course, that ends up backfiring, but we'll get there. But, yeah. I, that's an also interesting point the book brings up too. That is a really good point. And you also notice when she's in the shower, she just seems like, because in these scenes, her face is always concerned. She has a very concerned expression. But in the shower, she seems relieved and happy. And I think it is like what you said. There's this kind of like, she's unburdened herself. And she's like, okay, I, I'm, I'm making the right choice again. Right. And I want to go back to the, the car driving scenes just for a moment, because I want to mention the music. This is when the music really kicks in, and mm-hmm. this is when when I first was when I was watching it the first time, I said to myself, "I want this soundtrack. I want it now," because <laughs> this this the score is so good. And one of the times that just kind of hits you is right after she gets done talking to the cop, and she, he finally you know, just kind of they're talking to her, and then he lets her go, and she rolls up her window, and then it's it's the shot is facing her, and the cop is in the background, and you can kind of see him as she drives off. But once she hits the acceleration and starts driving off the music hits and it does that famous uh psycho score but it's really impactful and of course you, you see the cop following her and then he gets up into the exit lane and then while the while while she's thinking of all these situations and imagining everything the score just is always there looming it's really kind of spooky and then of course one, right before it starts raining it gets closer and closer to her face and the more she imagines these situations it's almost like she's smiling like yes. half smiling and it's like kind of it's kind of freaky because she's looking at the camera like dead on and there's a number of yeah. times where this happens and usually that's a big no-no in film is to look at the camera dead on but in psycho they do it i think three or four times and and each time it's insanely effective and it's and it's only 1960 it's a 1960s horror but it's still mm-hmm. really effective to do that and to break that rule of never looking dead on on the camera yeah, and I, I did make a comment about her smile. It's kind of a crazy smile that it, it's she's kind of like, I'm sticking it to them. Yeah. And I really think it's interesting because we get an eerily similar smile with the one of the very last shots of when Norman looks into the camera. Yeah. And, it, and, and that's the same. He's like thinking the same thing, like, I'm going to stick it to these people and get away with it. Exactly, you know? yeah. I'm so much better than them that i've kind of fooled them all you know it's really cool the symmetry between those scenes and i really like how you mentioned 
there's there's like a really incredible harmony between acting the score and cinematography right where they're all reflecting each other and working in like tandem with what we're seeing on the screen and it's creating the emotions within us as well because we're, we're not just part we're just not viewing it but we're also participating and that's great because it it shows not tells and that's the best kind of storytelling absolutely yeah this is what this is of course i know we talked about this a little bit in the 2049 review but that there's a difference between movies and films and this is very much a film yes. because it, it you definitely have big part of audience participation because not only are you watching this this series of events unfold but you're like like you said participating and like you're you're feeling and understanding what's happening on screen which is always very important yes that's true and i do feel at this moment the film almost takes on this kind of like kind of like almost like mystical aspect in a way because it's really weird because the rain becomes like so blinding mm-hmm. that somehow she's like you know just like before she knows it she's in the Bates motel parking lot yeah and it's kind of like she's kind of like transported to this dark realm or something almost it's just really i always thought that was really interesting because i've i've driven in rain just like that yeah where you can't even see anything at all but she keeps driving and then somehow she's like guided right to Bates Motel and I'm like that's that's just really crazy and she like doesn't even realize it right because she's like I thought I had gotten off the main road and I'm like you think like yeah you're just driving and you don't know what you're doing exactly and I think this also could be a commentary of like you said before it's kind of reminded me of this um you said before that the path that she's heading right now and now it's it's starting to become uh like faded and she doesn't really know where it's going to go because the rain's starting to hit the windshield and start to become like essentially blinding it's almost a commentary if not a commentary on like taking the easy path because base yeah. motel is just right there off the road and she could stop there instead of continuing on to california even though she might not be able to see very far ahead of her instead she decides to stop at the base motel and you know look where that got her about 10 minutes later exactly and she learns from norman he's like yeah that's like 15 15- miles away yeah which really isn't that far to drive so she's like am i that close i'm like yeah you could be with sam right now right and she still decides to stay the night even after that and she decides to stay the night when it stops even when it stops raining exactly and it doesn't even rain for that long i'm like she could have just pulled off she had no problem pulling off to the side of the road and sleeping in her car for that earlier night so she could have just pulled off and waited like 10 minutes for the rain to stop and then she could have went on and, and done that but yeah, it's interesting kind of like how her choices have consequences. Absolutely, yeah. There is definitely a cause and effect theme here too. Yeah, and I kind of likened the Bates Motel to, it's kind of like a Venus flytrap almost. Mm-hmm. That's a good description, yeah. Thank you, yeah. You just kind of like come by unsuspectingly thinking, you know, it's just another motel mm-hmm. or another trap you know or plant not trap (laughs) it's just very unsuspecting but there's a really dark nature to it and um i'm i believe this is like kind of been used in mythology before also or in like old storytelling where kind of like hansel and gretel yeah yeah where they're going through these dark woods they can't find their way and what do you know here's this you know wonderful candy house right you know this you know the sanctuary from you know the elements or whatever so uh, it's interesting how hitchcock also utilizes 
that type of storytelling, uh, that older storytelling. And like you said, it's right off. It's it's just kind of like right off the road, you know. Even though it's hidden away, it's still the easy way to go. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Wow. That's really interesting. This is also a good point that Thomason brings up in his book. He says, "Why would they use a motel and not just use their house?" Mm. You know. And it, yeah. it is a really interesting point because, in some sense, the house might be safer uh, when it comes to like using a hotel and still participating in those killings that happen, because because now you have the motel tied to it. Um, that's kind of like a separate area, but yeah, it's he brings up a really interesting, a really interesting point. Yeah, I do. I kind of think of. I I mean, I just thought of this. This is just a theory, mm-hmm. but what if, okay, the house is his childhood home where he grew up under the extreme control of his mother, right. but the motel is where he can be Norman Bates, the manager. He can run his own business. You know, he can be his own man. He's away from his mother there. So to me, that kind of seems like it kind of like is a fraction, like a fracturing of like made manifest visually manifested of his personalities absolutely yeah. he's al- he's always drawn back to the house you know uh, we know he sleeps up there but we see him spending most of his day down at the motel so right. i think there's something there to that uh, i think that's visual storytelling yeah again. and if you really think about it too um this is of course going back to the 60s this is more of where traditional marriages come from is that with a, with a traditional marriage, you have the woman who's always working in the house, and then you have the mm. man who goes and works mm, uh, to make the money and, like, raise a family. And like you said uh, just a second ago, how the hotel down the hill is essentially where Norman Bates goes to be a man. And then, of course, his mom lives up in the house. That's right. interesting. And also, uh, in Gothic literature, and it was also incredibly utilized in the book house of leaves and i can't pronounce his name right now but definitely look up house of leaves uh rooms you'll notice it a lot in uh, edgar Allan poe stories for instance the mask of the red death there's many different rooms and i'm i'm trying to think of another example but uh notice that next time even in the the fall of the house of usher yes the house in gothic literature represents the mind in a way because there's many different rooms and there's many different compartments of the mind and it's really incredible how poe uses words and imagery to you know describe the house and you're like he's it almost seems like he's describing a mind right with its hallways and doorways and pathways and different things like that so i think we could also see the motel where there's many different rooms and even the house where there's many different rooms as Norman's, you know, different personalities. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and in the book, there's actually three different personalities. And in the movie, we kind of touch on the three different personalities. There's his mother, there's the doting son who is under the control of his mother. And then there's just regular Norman right, who wants to be free of that. So, I wouldn't be surprised if Hitchcock is, like I mentioned, the house is very gothic. It's kind of something you would expect to see in um, like an Edgar Allan Poe story or something like that. Oh, yeah. But I believe the hotel is definitely representative of 
the mind. There's many different rooms and he knows these rooms because he's like created like holes to look into the rooms as kind of pathways to see into all of these places to make sure he's in control. Right. So I, I, I don't know. I could be wrong about that, but yeah. I really see that tied to Gothic literature of representing the house and the rooms as the mind, because this movie has a lot to do with Norman's mind and his psyche. Right. And yeah, that's, that's a very interesting point. And since we're on the subject of Norman, I do have to say that Norman Bates, I honestly, I love his character like mm-hmm. so much. He's just like, yeah. he's at least, the Norman that we meet when we first meet him, he's just so nice and so shy and is just always wanting, like willing to make friends with somebody. And it's, you wouldn't even suspect that at the end, it, he is essentially the one who kills, uh, Arbogast and, uh, Marion. And it's, it's kind of even scary when we, we'll get there, but I honestly, I love his character just so much. And like the book said, it's almost a travesty that he didn't get at least a nomination for his role as Norman Bates. It really is. And we do see that when he is having, well, I guess it's not, he's not really having dinner with her Mm -hmm. because it's really weird. He's like, Hey, you want to have dinner with me? And then he just makes a sandwich for her. He's like, I'm not eating. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, what? (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) exactly. Yeah. It's it's definitely, he's definitely looking for at least a friendship. Yeah. Cause he, probably has like barely any interaction with people right and it's also kind of interesting too because when he does come down with quote-unquote dinner or the sandwich like you said uh he comes up to marion's room and he kind of makes gives an excuse for us to what happened and then she goes okay we are you going to come in and she steps back motioning for him to come into his room and he sits there looks at her for just a minute and says oh we can eat in the in the office and of course they go in the office and then he says oh we can eat in the uh the parlor and so they eat in the parlor and it's it's just an interesting turn of events that 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 happens. It kind of I don't know if it's it's kind of a clash of both of their characters. Yeah, and what I got from that is to me going into a woman's room, especially a strange woman's room, mm-hmm. to me I'm sure he has that implanted from his mother that that would be kind of like filthy doing that. Yeah. And there'd be something like too perverted about doing that even though it's not true because right before that he has an argument with his mom where she says things like cheap erotic fashion for your cheap erotic mind right and she's like i'm not gonna feed her ugly appetite with my food and i was like well that's a really good line and so that that was my thought is if he goes in there he's really not in control because it's not his room it's now her room right and you could tell he's tired of being under the control of one woman and specifically his mother. So what he does is he changes to the front desk area, which doesn't make any sense. And then we see him move to the back parlor, which puts him in control. Right. Of exactly. A safe yeah. space. Exactly. Yeah. And then the this taxidermy thing also comes into play a little bit later when we find out what exactly happened to mother. But he says that um, essentially he alludes to the birds being passive, essentially. Nothing bad happens to birds. Or nothing They don't yeah. do anything bad. And it's really, really interesting, especially for his character. I really like that line. And I also thought the birds maybe could represent, like, he wants... I don't really know if this is it. This is the only thing I could get out of it, besides right. it being just kind of weird and creepy and, like, these, like, birds kind of, like, preying upon them right. or upon the people that come there. Um, but the birds we, we see, especially the owl, which is just an amazing shot. 
of when he's sitting at the uh, bottom right of the frame and we see this big owl with its wings spread out kind of like it's spread out over him yeah but to me i was like well maybe he wants to fly away like a bird right i don't know right and, and we, also, we also see in her room there's two bird pictures that's true yeah and he actually knocks one of them down when he notices that she's that she's dead yes um but i do kind of want to mention something about the cinematography at least in this scene because this is when it really also kind of shows off is when norman is essentially becoming like defensive about his mother or whatever or whatever they're talking about he leans forward and there's this thing called reverse framing because usually when you have a shot of somebody looking a specific direction you put their head the back of their head towards the back of the frame so that way when they're looking put somewhere the gaze that they're looking in is open right now mm -hmm. Reverse framing is when you put where they're gazing, and you put the front of their head towards the other side of the frame, so the back of their head has all has all the has all the room. And in this scene, when Norman gets like defensive, essentially, when he's like defending his mother, he'll lean forward, and you have that reverse framing effect. But when he's being passive, he leans back, and you have the owl mm. that's in his place. I noticed that this last time when I was watching it, and I thought that was very, very interesting. Not to mention the fact that this entire conversation is also very, very interesting. Yeah, that's that's a really good point. And he, the conversation moves to the mother, mm -hmm. and he said a boy's best friend is his mother. And oh, something funny is he starts petting the bird. Yeah, you notice that. Yeah, he leans back and he starts petting it. <laughs> yeah, right. And. Uh, He's talking about like traps and he said, I was born in mine. He said, I don't mind anymore. And then he said, I really do, but I say I don't. Right. So Norman is always, I believe he's been like, he's like had to put up a facade and because then he's like, well, I say I do, but I really don't. Right. Right. And he, and also, this is something we'll talk about later with the dialogue about when it comes to his mother, but it's very contradictory when he's talking about certain things or when his mother is talking about certain things because it just doesn't make sense. Mm -hmm. And we, we learned that he, his father died when he was five and he grew up in isolation with his mother. Now, all of growing up, it was just him and his mom, and the we learned the motel was only built... Uh, he says a few years ago, but I'm assuming it's probably more like 10 um, or possibly just a little more because apparently his mom got a boyfriend, which seems very surprising to me Yeah, that she would after all that time. And he says they died in a horrible way. And this part, this line really creeped me out when he said a son is a poor substitute for a lover. Yeah. Ooh, that is really weird. Yeah, that was a line that Marion mentions that a son is a poor lie a poor substitute for a mother or for a lover well also he says i hate what she's become the right. illness and i'm like wow that is really interesting that he brings up the illness because he's ill right but in his mind because this is this is the normal norman right now so he clearly understands there's something kind of sick and twisted going on and clearly from right. that conversation but it's really interesting right and and i love like really examining it especially this time around because there's so many clues oh yeah as to what's going on possibly without giving anything away really 
Right. Yeah, there's some like really, really good foreshadowing happening here. And not just that, but this conversation, it goes from just like a normal conversation and then they start talking about birds and how they're caged and they scratch and claw to get out of their cages and stuff like that. And how he doesn't mind being in his cage now. And it kind of turns like into this dark conversation and Marion ends up accidentally offending him saying, well, why don't you just move away, you know, get out and or even put her in a mental a mental institution and he goes put her in a madhouse have you been in one of those places and he kind of like gets really defensive and starts shooting back at her saying that he would never do that and that she's not she's not mentally unstable she's just sick in this conversation i love this conversation so much because it turns from this normal conversation that just doesn't that seems like you know just small talk into like someone is almost offended, but then at the end, it's like they're friends and she, and she ends up being like moved by what he's saying and says, okay, I think I'm actually going to go back to Phoenix after they have this conversation about being let out of their cages and stuff like that. And she's like, I'm going to try and make things right or as right as I possibly can. And it's because of Norman, the book brings this up. And it's because of Norman that she makes a decision to go back and make things right again, you know, instead of continuing on down this dark path. It's really, it's, the conversation is just so, so good. And we definitely get a lot of insight into Norman as well. Just like the way that he thinks. And this is the opening scene. This isn't like later on in the movie where it's the, where it's the, moving on to almost the third act and all that information is revealed and stuff like that. This is the opening scene. We're only like 30 minutes in. And it's such a great conversation. It's one of my favorites of all time. Of course, we have the famous line of, oh, we all go a little mad sometimes, you know, haven't you? And in the book, he's, the author says, Shifted tone on the phrase, we all go a little mad sometimes, haven't you? As if Marion now realizes that she's done, that she did wrong and wants to fix it, Norman has moved her. And yeah, of course, that famous, this is, that famous line is just so, so good. Oh, wow. I hadn't even thought about that line affecting her. Yeah. Saying, because yeah, she did kind of have this moment of craziness <laughs> where she, yeah, yeah, she just stole the money, which was totally out of character for her to do as far as we would know. Yeah. But you bring up a lot of good points in this scene. And like you said, the writing is so well and it's so natural and it, and it evolves just right. And we see the progression of, it's almost not even a progression in a way that it's, it's like a slight progression with these slightly like aggravated undertones from Norman until he eventually gets really defensive and he yeah. really changes where it's like, whoa, we're just having a cordial conversation. I'm sorry if I overstep my bounds, but there's no need for you to almost get irate mm -hmm. about my suggestions. It, it really shouldn't affect him that much, but it shows him how sensitive he is and how, you know, kind of delicate he is. And I think one of, the kind of foreshadowings is when he says she's as harmless as a stuffed bird. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, yeah, because she's a mummy. But then again, to him, she's not harmless because she does commit multiple murders. And she, I mean, she as being Norman already has committed murders. We know of, uh, eventually in the end. Right. And it's very interesting because Norman speaks about the institution and, I was thinking, okay, how does he know what an institution is like right. if he's supposedly grown up so sheltered unless uh, unless he has had some 
dealing with an institution in some way. Because it's interesting how he speaks about the institution, and I love the line when he says they'll cluck their thick tongues and suggest oh so delicately, and I'm like, oh, that's just when he changes, and it just gets pretty frightening. When, when their conversation is done, and Marion says thank you, and then he says thank you, Norman, and it's very commanding like that. I was like, oh, wow, that's interesting, because normally you don't do that to strangers. Right, yeah. And like you said, I was really surprised by it how Norman's like their conversation makes her change her mind and I didn't even really think about it and I don't think my dad had either and we've seen the film multiple times and he's like right. wow I never really thought about how their conversation and especially when he says we all go a little mad sometimes how that influenced her yeah so greatly uh, yeah right. very interesting Right. And then it's right after this conversation, Marion goes back and she does the math and stuff on the piece of paper. Oh, this was the other scene I was thinking of. Um, yeah, when she when she takes the piece of paper, rips it up and, and puts it in the toilet and flushes it. Yeah, flushing a toilet on screen was a big no-no, apparently. And back in the 60s. Really? Yeah, no, for real. This is one of the things that, this is one of the three things that I mentioned, uh, the one that I forgot to mention, that I didn't know, I forgot to mention um that's so funny i know it's really funny to think that that was something that almost held this film from being released but anyways yeah so we, she rips up the paper and this of course one of the pieces that she rips up ends up being a clue later on down the road but this scene it's almost like we see the transition of norman from just norman to his mother personality and it's kind of freaky because of course towards the end of the conversation he kind of slowly degrades and gets more defensive and more defensive and then he says to her the last time he says is thank you norman as if you said kind of commanding like but then the next time we next time we see him he's taking the picture off the wall and looking through the people when we see her walking into the bathroom in a bathrobe and then he puts the picture back and he walks back up to the house and he walks into the house and he's trying not to he's trying to contemplate himself and he stands at the he stands at the banister for just a minute and walks into the kitchen and then sits down but then looks down the hallway, at least like towards the camera, like he's still contemplating of whether he should or should do or trying to fight something. You know, he's trying to keep himself distracted almost. And it's really, really interesting to think that maybe we're seeing the progression of him changing from one personality to the, to the other. Right. And I would say what also triggers it is Marion gives away her true name and her true residence. Right. Because in the book, she puts like Marie Samuels or something like that. And right. she's from like San Diego or Los Angeles. I can't remember which one. Yeah. But we know she's from, we know her real name is not that. And we know she's from Phoenix, Arizona. So he gets her name and she's like Miss Crane. And then she's like, you know what? Tomorrow morning, I'm going back to Phoenix. Right. Because she became so relaxed with him, she. And she's like done with the lie that she forgot to keep it up or she forgot she even started it with him, I would say. And this also, I believe that that kind of like, you know, causes this. Uh, I don't really know how to say it, but I guess Norman kind of realizes that, yeah, this woman is trying to swindle me. And my mom was right because the mom was saying, you know, she's, you know, has this perverted mind and she's a trickster and like this bad girl or something right. you know and it's like oh okay so he knows his mom is right and it is really creepy when he peeps through that wall 
and there's a close-up shot of his eye, which is amazing. Yeah, absolutely. And in the book, in the book, actually, Norman is totally different. He's like middle-aged and fat and balding. And uh, the story in the book switches back between Marion and Norman. There's some other differences. I recommend if you uh, really want to know more about those, then check out a Cinefix's video. What the, what's the difference between the book and the movie? And but the but there is a difference. Um, Norman is, you know, a little more perverted, I guess, because the the hole is in the shower in the book. Gotcha. We also notice kind of like what you were saying is Norman keeps looking up at the house. He keeps looking up towards the house multiple times. And I just love the shot because and it's almost kind of like, should I do this or not? You know, and it's very similar to Mm -hmm. when uh, Marion was looking back at the money because she kept she kept doing about like doing her stuff, but she kept looking back at the money. Right. Norman's kind of doing stuff, but he keeps looking up at the house. Right. So it's kind of like, should I give in or should I not give in? And he, I love the shot when Norman walks out of the office room and then the camera does like this half kind of arc around Norman. And that could be signifying that he has turned and he's going up to the house to, you know, get mother to come back down there. So I, I just love that camera shot. And yeah, that could be how like his perspective has started here and now it's shifted, it's changed, it's moved right. like that. And of course, next we have the most, probably the most iconic scene now. At the very least, it's the most recognized. And the book has a lot to say about this scene. So moving up to the scene, the book says that up until before the shower scene, the movie has quote-unquote, liked Marion, is saying basically look at her and we get to see the inner workings of her mind in just 40 minutes and how, and I've kind of put in my own notes, it's kind of a small character arc. Although mm-hmm. it's it does have a lot to say, even though it's a very simple one, it has a lot to say just in those first 40 minutes. And it says, it goes on to say, a troubled girl goes to work with, and handed a crap load of cash, is in pursuit of running away, but is then saved by Norman to return it and try and make things right. It wants her to succeed at a point and learn her mistake. But interestingly, we've seen her in her underwear three times in 40 minutes, and it's only now that she become, that she completely undresses. It, it, this is even a play on the audience because we've been teased the entire movie, and now the char- it's the character's final moment. Interesting sexual tension between the main character when the first part in the audience. And then I have my notes. There's a giant theme of invasion of privacy because... If you really think about it, of course, the opening scene is that, like I mentioned, the that intimate conversation that seems like we almost shouldn't be looking in on this. And then later when she's contemplating the money in her black underwear and she's wondering if she should or shouldn't walk away. And then now is the first time we ever, we ever see her technically disrobed and completely bare. And this is the biggest scene that was under question by the production company, or the production code, is that... Some, having someone taking a shower was huge. The, even more than the toilet, essentially. Because the toilet was not too big of a deal, but it's just like, don't do that, you know? But this one was just like, seeing somebody take a shower, nuh-uh, don't, just don't do that. That's Like I said, it's a big thing of invasion of privacy. And this is where that movie kind of gets the audience, is that the shower, at least in the 60s, was was a big place of privacy. 
And now the movie's going to just rip that to shreds with the mother coming in and, and killing Marion. And this scene, while she's taking a shower, like right in the middle of her taking a shower. And back then, and I'd say even now, it's this scene is just so effective because it's so... The, the main character is just left so open to attack. And it's really spooky. And it's kind of funny to say it on Halloween. But it's... I mean it in a way that it's... One of those things that just gets, gets under your skin the more you think about it. Because when you're taking a shower, you never really think about, oh, someone's going to come in and get me or whatever, you know. Or paranormal activity does this kind of the same thing. It kind of invades the bedroom where you're sleeping. That That's not cool because it's really a private, it's a private yeah. area. But now at this point in the movie, she's taking a shower and that's when she gets her. And that's like, like I said before, it's kind of like when she's trying to cleanse herself of what she's done wrong. But she can't now because she's going to die. And if I'm not mistaken, uh, she wasn't actually naked. She has some kind of bodysuit on. Yes, yes, that's true. And so don't go pausing it and try and go frame by frame because you won't, you, you won't see anything because there actually is no nudity. Right. And it's also interesting there. The scene is like so disturbing and so violent, and, but there's no actual contact with the knife and body. There's no actual, we don't ever see any like contract contact or penetration. Right. But with the music and the editing, it's like so frantic. You're just so caught up in her. Uh, but you do see what I believe is actually Hershey's chocolate used for blood. Yes. Uh, they did use melted Hershey's chocolate because it was shot in black and white. So what was the point? And you know, yes, using real blood, especially if they had such a low budget. That's so cool, but it's still so effective. And especially in like a society where we see like really gruesome deaths on screen with the Saw films and just now with the release of Jigsaw. Yeah, I mean, we're like modern audiences are used to this, mm -hmm. but I still feel this scene really holds up and of course even surpasses those gruesome, gory death scenes. Right. I'd say another film that does these death scenes just right and is amazing is in Halloween. And that's kind of the thing, though, is that we have we've had so much character development up until this point. We've literally seen our character built, given a problem, and then change in forty minutes. Like there's a lot to go through in that forty minutes, even though it may not seem like very much, because this movie compared to nowadays is pretty slow paced. But if you really go back and think about it, they in just about forty fifty minutes they are they developed a character and made her and have her make a change in just like half of this runtime and then we see her die and not only is it super effective in the way that it's presented because when the mother rips open the curtains and those strings are just blaring and it's super effective because at that point like i said before she's completely open to attack and she has no room of defense and but psychologically it's just like it's almost like it's a tragedy almost because this character has tried is now been trying to go back and make things right but it's too late. She's dead. And then it also kind of brings up the question, okay, well, now she's dead. Who's the main character? Because now that Marion's dead, what are we supposed to do without a main character? And maybe even with the audience ourselves, it kind of gives us, leaves us open to attack because we don't have anybody safe enough to go off of now in the story. All we have is Norman. That's a really good point to bring up because this is incredibly shocking that the main character would be killed off this early in the film yeah and that's why i mentioned earlier this is very unconventional you never see this yeah. today or even back then no 
no, you never do. And it's interesting because the point, the movie has been told from her point of view. Mm -hmm. And I believe the point of view kind of skips around from now on. We kind of get the point of view from her sister, Lila and uh, Arbogast Mm -hmm. for a while. But we don't, I don't believe we ever really get the view from Norman. And I think that's the right thing to do because Norman is such, he's such a fractured character. Um, We do get that one individual scene where Norman carries his mother Mm -hmm. from her bedroom to the fruit cellar, but it's not told from his point of view because you'll notice that we just see him like walking up the stairs and then we don't go into the bedroom, but it's just a bird's eye view of the hallway and staircase. We can't really attach to Norman's character really because we can't really understand him and we don't know what's going on with him. We just know there's something incredibly wrong right? going on. Exactly. And I really think it's interesting before we see this incredible uh, shot of marion's eye where there's no blinking which would have been incredibly hard to do mm-hmm. we see the drain and we see the drain is being emptied and it's like the life has drained literally drained out of her exactly yeah that's a good point and yeah. also if you notice the score in the clean when he's cleaning up the mess the score has like these two repetitive notes that it just goes back and forth between just to kind of represent this task is repetitive. I thought that was a really interesting play with the score there. Yeah. And something we kind of forgot to talk about, but we can talk about now, is why did Marion put the money in the newspaper? I always thought that was a really weird choice. Didn't make any sense. Yeah. I mean, my guess is to kind of just, I don't know, I guess protection to kind of hide it, you know, hide that she made this mistake and somehow Norman were to find it. You know, that's that's my guess. Yeah, I don't know. That's a good good point. And I'm I'm kind of surprised. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's just because so in case she gets robbed or I think it's just part of her paranoia trying to figure out a way to hide it. Right, yeah. But that's actually her it's actually her downfall uh with that money anyway because the money just gets lost to the swamp. Right. It's a right. little surprising though uh that Norman can't feel this really thick newspaper and how hard it and solid it is with those big chunks of money inside he, he can't right. feel it apparently <laughs> right and i do kind of want to go back just for a moment to talk about that scene the scene or the shot that happens right when the last shot of marion that we see um of her face is when she's dead on the floor like she tried to escape and she grabs the shower curtain and pulls it down with her and she just falls over like half out of the tub you know with the shower still going and we have this really we have this super close-up of her eye and the camera kind of pans like zooms out and like pans out and it tilts and we and she's looking dead on the camera like right into the audience and it's very very effective even today watching it i was getting chills just looking at the scene it's really long too it's a really lengthy shot and it's not not technically gruesome at all you just see a dead body just looking at the camera and it just zooms out and shows you everything that she's just kind of hanging outside the tub and it's just, it's super effective. One of my favorites of all time, just because of how effective it is. Yeah, it, it's unsettling. Well, and I think it also, there's a big symbolism. We talked about the rooms and house being representative of the mind. Mm-hmm. Well, it just so happens right behind the house is, is a swamp or bog or some kind of, right. uh, maybe even some kind of tar pit. And I just love it because... That is still totally representative of his mind because Norman says, this is my world. This is the only world I've known. 
and he right. goes and he buries this stuff back there. And when the car is sinking, it stops sinking. And I, I can definitely see that being representative of like, it's not completely buried within like his subconscious, but it's like getting there. And it's just a very right. thick recess of his memory that he likes to push this, these horrible tragedies away because we see he's clearly shocked by the murder and we learn at the end that there's right. been more girls that have been murdered. So that bog is definitely representative of his mind and how he's trying to bury it back in the recesses of his mind. Yeah, yeah. That's a really good point. And I wonder, I kind of wonder now if, because there's always been a big thing for me about Psycho is it's all about, not necessarily about a serial killer, but more about the search for the main character, if you really think about it. Because we don't really know, we, we think it's Marion at first, but then she dies. And then we're kind of just left open to, okay, well now who are we supposed to follow? And it kind of skips around, but it always comes back to Norman is what I've always noticed. And I wonder if it's, if Norman's mind is the main character of the story. Because like you noticed, or like, like you said, the area where the Bates Motel uh, plot is at um, is very reminiscent of Norman's mind where he tries to bury these things in the mud and the different apart the different motel rooms are like different regions of his mind and that big house in the hills is always overlooking this this tiny it seems to be tiny motel and of course that theme we brought up earlier of the man and the woman and that traditional relationship of the woman always working in the house and the man always working for the family and i wonder if maybe that's the main character of of psycho is the fact that of course the name too psycho that guy is always Norman is always trying to bury things and has different rooms and stuff like that. And the plot for the, the plot, what I mean by plot, I mean like the land that the, the setting of Psycho is in, it's very reminiscent of who exactly Norman is. Well, we, we next transition to Sam because our main uh, character is now gone. So we immediately move to Sam, but more so we move to Marion's sister, Lila. And I can, I can tell they're sisters. I think they chose a good uh, match. For the two, mm -hmm. yeah, they definitely and look alike. Get, if you make sure to, when you watch this movie, listen to the uh, kind of the background dialogue because there's just some funny lines in this movie. I, I love when this lady, they're at like this, I don't know, kind of like a hardware store, I guess, and the lady is asking yeah. about if the bug killer is painless. She's like, "But is it painless? It doesn't say if it's painless. I'm not going to buy it unless it's painless because I want these bugs dead, but I don't want them to be in pain while I kill them." I, I just exactly, couldn't go without yeah. bringing that up. It's just really funny, especially in a movie that is all about like these painful murders, you know. <laughs> mm -hmm. And then yeah, and then it's also kind of funny that going off of that, um, the when Sam is talking with Lila and she and he tells. His in Sam turns around and tells the, his coworker to you know go eat his lunch and he's and, he's, and he says something like that at the effect of Do you have lunch? He's like Yeah, oh yeah, it's in the back. He's like Oh, then take a lunch break and he just goes Oh, it's fine. I'll you later. He goes Go eat it yes. now. And this this scene is this whole scene is just kind of morbidly funny because we just saw a really impactful murder happen right before our eyes and now it's just kind of oh you know whatever you know and and then of course it kind of moves on from there but it's just like this this funny scene just to kind of lighten the mood after what we just yeah. saw that, that's a good point yeah because it does go from really serious i mean this went from you know this lady kind of on the run making bad choices to this crazy 
brutal murder and then she's like is this painless because i want it to be a painless death and then yeah sam's like run out and get some lunch and he's like that's okay sam i brought it with me and he's like well go outside and eat. <laughs> yes yes it's just it's really funny and i also kind of want to bring up this now because this is also a theme and i kind of mentioned it before but it's that theme of relationships where we kind of get norman well first we off we get sam and marion and the and the guy who wrote the book thomason he kind of says that although they have the first shown relationship it seems to be very shallow and that they're kind of just in it just for the affection and like the physical contact that comes with it but then when marion goes and meets norman they develop a relationship and it's more of a friendship and he ends up changing her life essentially in more ways than one but then later on we get sam and Lila, and they kind of help this friendship, you know, and to find out what happened to Marion, you know, and there's a big theme of relationships. And especially later on, we also have the relationship between, that's explained to us, the relationship between Norman and his mom. And this big theme of relationships. Wow, yeah, I, I hadn't even thought about that. And especially we see a lot of male-female relationships. Um, yeah. And yeah. even relationships in passing, like with uh, Mr. Cassidy and Marion at the real estate company, how, you know, and he's talking right. about how he, his daughter is getting married and he's buying her a house and he's uh, buying off unhappiness and how you can't do that. And there's a lot to the relationships in this movie and their depth mm -hmm. or even lack of. Uh, but we also are now introduced to the private investigator Arbogast, which I think is a pretty cool name. And it's a very close-up shot of Arbogast. And I just love how Hitchcock uses these huge close-ups to really make us uncomfortable. Like we just mentioned with the mm -hmm. eye. And we do, we do cut back between Arbogast. But then again, it's also coming back to that theme of what is... What is his place in this scenario, in this private matter? And Sam even asks him that. He's right. like, what is your stake in this, you know? And we first see Arbogast looking in the window. Okay, everybody's out of the store. He told the employee to get out of there, who he clearly knows better than Arbogast. And Arbogast is looking in, and he says, yeah, let's all talk about Marion. And it's just another one of those things, kind of peeking in and uh also later they do a lot of snooping around in the motel right. and even in the house but when arbogast does get to the hotel it's really funny because he noticed every time he gets to the hotel or ghost places instead of giving getting outside of his like the door closest to him on the driver's side he scoots across the seat and gets out of the passenger's door and he really struggles with it it's it's really funny I don't understand that. Yeah, I, it's you know really yeah. funny. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and yeah, like uh, it's kind of it, he's a good investigator too because he's just like, okay, I want to go check around all the hotels in the area, and then eventually comes across you know the Bates Motel. But I just kind of want to bring this up too is that this movie does a really good job at creating characters because we're we have there are a lot of characters in this movie. We've got Norman, we've got Mother, we've got Marion, of course. We've got Sam, Lila, Arbogast, um, even some side characters that are not so important, like the like Marion's boss or the guy who gave him gave her the forty thousand dollars or her coworker. Like all these characters, they all have their own individual personalities. You you can always tell them apart, like just looking at their face. You go, okay, well that's the boss, and I know what he does. You know, he's the boss, and they all have distinct personalities. And I love Arbogast because he's easily the character 
that plays a big role but has the least amount of screen time. But he but his personality is so poignant that he has this drive to figure out what happened. And he is a private investigator because they didn't want to get the police involved. We'll find that we find that out later. But he's just really good at his job and he wants to just kind of figure out what happened and he goes to Bates Motel and he's questioning Bates, you know. Not trying to be too brooding, but also just trying to figure out what's going on. And when he starts being suspicious, when Norman starts being suspicious, then Arbegas gets suspicious, you know. And he talks on the phone with, uh, I think this, I think it was Sam and Lila. It was Lila. Yeah, okay. Yeah, it was Lila. And you can tell, it's just like, yeah, there's something missing here. And so he goes back, and then, of course, that's when he dies. But yeah, there's, I noticed this on my viewing that this movie does a really, really good job at creating a character really quick. But one that's like so original that you can tell if you were to line all the characters up in this movie you could tell each one of them apart and what they at least what they do uh, yeah and i've always been really fascinated by the arbogast character because he's really not here for very long but he like you said he is yeah. such a fascinating character because of his mannerisms and his confidence and his stake in the matter uh he kind of kind of helps bridge what marion did in the beginning and we didn't even this guy you know wasn't even on the scene and then bridge the connection between finding out what happened to her at the end because right. it is arbogast who leads to finding everything out because arbogast calls up lila on the phone and she says arbogast knew something and i think he talked with the mother and now arbogast has disappeared and they do they do trust arbogast very quickly and they do they develop a, a significant relationship with him. So although Arbogast is brief in this movie, he does act as kind of a character bridge between all the other characters. He, in a way, kind of connects all of them because he right. is looking for Marion and then he comes into contact with Lila because we never see um, Marion and Lila together, but Arbogast is uh, on screen with like pretty much every character in the movie minus um the sheriff and his wife and the, all those other characters at the end but those are kind of like side characters right. uh talking about main characters anyway so yeah he's kind of the the connectivity and links everything together and kind of bridges those certain aspects i did think it was interesting and kind of confusing okay arbogast goes and speaks with bates and bates is lying and he gets very flustered and starts stuttering a lot. And just another compliment to Anthony Perkins' acting. Uh, just how flustered oh, and yeah. he gets. Absolutely. But And it's really interesting because when Norman real, realizes that Marion has lied to him, he murders her. But then what does he do? He lies about his activities. He is totally dishonest mm -hmm. also. For You know, he does the exact same thing that she does. But in some way, he acts like he's above it, and he's terrible of getting out of it. And um, something else that I noticed that I forgot to bring up uh, way earlier in the podcast is if you look at the uh, register book, when Marion gets there, the last person to have gotten there was at the very like April eighteenth. So it's been like mm. nine months or something since the last person has been at Bates Motel. So. Right, quite a long, right. quite long stretch. That could definitely be one of the murders. Yes, too. and it's it's very likely that that was also one of the murders. Mm -hmm. um, also, I really like the angle when Bates kind of bends his, he cranes his neck over to look at the book, and 
I think he's kind of like reverting to this kind of like childlike personality where like when you're a kid, you know, you've been caught, but you'll still make up stuff to get out of it and you get scared and stuttered and you start making up excuses. And it's just so funny because Norman knows that name is in the book. Yet Arbogast is like, oh, look, here it is. And Norman, you know, is craning over like, gee, I I never saw that before. Or it's just right. like he's just like this shocked child, like, whoa, what is that? I've, I've never seen that. So there's a lot of visual storytelling. Right. Yeah, And the book does talk about this. A couple of things, actually. One of them is that it says that it's interesting that when Marion arrives at the, ho- at the motel, Norman says that he always forgets to turn the sign off. But when Arbogast shows up, he says that he always forgets to turn Ooh, the sign wow. on. And, yeah, I didn't notice that until the book brought mention. And I was like, yeah, that's... Because I remember him saying that he forgets to turn the sign on when Arbogast gets there. But I forgot he said that when Marion was there. But also, when... Yeah, when he when he like reach when he when Norman like reaches over and his like head and neck kind of fill up the frame to look at the the book, the book says that it, the shot of Norman leaning over the book at, at the record book is very predatory and vulnerable. Yeah, because he's exposing his jugular. Yeah, I thought it was kind of an I thought it was kind of interesting that it, it made those connections. But yeah, that's it's very true. It makes a lot of sense. Very interesting. Yeah, and I think. Norman can't ever keep his story straight, it seems like. Yeah, that's true. And even with those minor little things, it's just, it's different every single time. And like I said, Norman always seems to be contradicting himself because uh, Arbogast says, well, was she in disguise? Maybe she fooled you. And then Norman gets incredibly defensive and Norman gets dark very quick. And Norman said, I'm not a fool and I'm not capable of being made a fool, even by a woman. Mm-hmm. Okay, but then he immediately contradicts himself and says, she fooled me, but she didn't fool my mother. Right. Okay, that's incredibly interesting because he said, I'm not capable of being made a fool or even being fooled by a woman. But then he then right after he says, she fooled me, but she didn't fool my mother. And that these are little hints about what is really going on with Norman Bates. Right. Because, yeah. The regular Norman was so gullible and happy-go-lucky and was totally sucked in by her, but then that predatory nature took over and he realized that she was lying and he did project a lot of these like crazy feelings onto her. And it's just interesting because his mother was commenting about how he has this perverted mind and then we see him like watching her undress and go to the shower. And right. it's kind of like, yeah, he kind of does actually you just see his personalities become skewed and i'm gonna come back to this at the very end but i'll leave it for that some question i just wanted to ask real quick is i wonder if you know the boyfriend's name is sam loomis i wonder if that influenced john carpenter uh with dr dr loomis oh yeah do we know dr loomis's first name in halloween it's not sam loomis is it i don't know I can't remember. Last time I watched that film was last year when we reviewed it. So, All it says on IMDb is Loomis. But right. I'm almost wondering if his name is Dr. Sam Loomis now, actually. That would be kind of funny. It'd be a pretty funny homage to Psycho. Yes. Listeners, if you know the answer, please comment that below because I'm really interested right now. 
Yes, unless you're on Apple Podcasts, in which case, oh. uh, too bad, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, and you're going to miss some really cool artwork also. Check it out on Podbean and YouTube. So, okay, Arbogast talks to... Uh, he talks to Bates, and then he drives back, kind of back into town to get on the phone. And he said, I think Norman's hiding something. Or he's like, I think the mother actually knows something. Because we see a woman walking around in the window. And we see that a number of times, or what appears to be a woman. Right. And he's like, I'm going to go back up there and see what I can do. I'm like, okay, so what do you think you're going to accomplish here? Because you just talked to him. You totally ticked him off. And then he comes back like half an hour later to the office. He's like, Norman, hey. I'm like, what do you... I don't know. I, I think that is kind of really weird and confusing. Right. I feel like he's just so close to finding out what happened to Marion that he just kind of can't let it go. And plus, if there's somebody up in the house, maybe they might know something. You know? Mm-hmm. That's that's my guess is because he is he was hired to find out to figure out this case and he is pretty close at this point you know with Marie Samuels or whatever right and yeah that's my guess probably just the curiosity and the fact that he has to do it is because his job is what pulled him to do that that makes sense yeah but yeah moving on to the staircase when he's walking up the staircase when he enters the house this scene I'm watching it this time I've really got that sense of suspense i mean i guess we are talking about hitchcock but just walking up the stairs the music gets really really quiet but it's still kind of there and he's just walking up the stairs and it's this it's zooming out but he's like slowly taking his steps and then it cuts and it's like this bird's eye view of the entire staircase and the and the door off to the off to the right and he reaches the top of the staircase and then Almost as if it's like a jump scare. Mm-hmm. Those strings pull in again like they did in the shower. And the mother comes out and uh, slashes Arbogast across the face. And then he falls down the stairs. And the scene is executed just so well. Because Hitchcock is so, so good at suspense. That this time when I was watching it, I was really getting into it. And I was just, and when that scene happened, I remember when I first watched it. That scene did make you jump with the strings and stuff. And, Norm, and the mother coming out. And uh, killing Arbogast. But yeah, this scene is so, so good. It, yeah, it, it really shocked me the first time I saw it. And it's, I, I don't know, I've always really enjoyed this scene. Because mm-hmm. it's a really interesting uh, shot when Arbogast is walking up the stairs. And the background, like everything around him is kind of blurred. And it's one yeah. of those effects where it like makes everything look really long and distant within the frame. Right. And it, it really is kind of a huge shot of him walking up the stairs and it's just like so expansive yeah it is kind of weird though when Arbogast gas does kind of like fall down the stairs that's a little weird it's clearly not real yeah he is yeah it, you're right it's it's pretty you can tell it's kind of fake and the book kind of mentions it but nothing of really of note but yeah it's just a really odd sequence when he's falling down the stairs and he's like standing upright and he's like waving his arms back and forth you know and he you hear the sounds of his feet hitting the hitting the steps and the ca- and the camera is following him but it's yeah, it's a very strange sequence that that part isn't quite right um it yeah. does look pretty good when it does cut to him at the like kind of the bottom of the stairs and tripping yeah. and that looks pretty real and it's just shocking because well first he gets slashed across the face and then he gets stabbed i believe the knife like we see it like twice probably before it cuts away so yeah. i mean he gets stabbed to death yeah, and he does. Honestly, the next scene and the next shot may be one of my f- most favorite shots in the whole movie. 
It's when um, Norman is in front of the tar pit after he is sinking Arbogast's car. And we see him turning around towards the camera because he hears uh, Loomis, it, Loomis calling out like, you know, Bates, Bates, you know, Norman, you here? Yeah, yeah. And he just, I love that because he just turns and he's like, this isn't over yet. And he's like, there's still more to do. Like, this isn't going away. And I just love, it's just a slow zoom. And you can actually see kind of the hills in the background. It's kind of this deserted area. I just love that slow lingering zoom in. And we just see Norman like slowly turn around and just hear it. It's an incredible shot. Uh, yeah. And I'm glad that we don't, you don't have that entire sequence of him dragging Arbogast from the house back into his car, pushing the car back into the, in the mud. We know what happens. It just cuts to him standing by the mud pit and he just turns around and we know immediately what happened. And Norman had cleaned up the mess essentially. And yeah, now he's, now it's, Almost as if his character is changing even more because now there's more people to deal with at the Bates Motel. And he's like, you got to be kidding me because he turns around, you know, and has his face almost completely dark, too. And it's, yeah, it's a really, really good shot. That's a good point you bring up there of the conflict that he that's, bring, that's brought up. I, I mean, John Carpenter had to be influenced by this shot because we see a lot of these like long lingering shots in Halloween um, not necessarily oh, yeah. zooms in Halloween. I, there's really almost no zooms. Um, but this is totally influenced by that. And also, the audience is kind of tricked right before Arbogast's death. Because before Arbogast pulls up to the hotel, we see Norman heading off around the corner. Uh, basically, possibly to where he ends up at the swamp later on. Right. So we see him heading off around the corner, and then Arbogast goes up to the house and... I remember my dad asked me that. He's like, wait a minute. I saw Norman go off around the motel. How did he get all the way back up to the house to put on his mother's things all the way up to the upstairs? And I, I believe he circled around. He just made a big arc and circled around. But it is right. interesting how even though Hitchcock does drop these hints of something's not right about the mom and Norman – there is still enough to trick you where it's like, but wait, I just saw Norman run the other way or right, Norman was yeah. not even remotely close to when this happened. Right. Exactly. Yeah. You're, you're so right on that because yeah, like you said, Norman walks off down, down that way to take care of their rooms and our guest goes into the house and then, yeah, he just magically, of course, when looking thinking back on it at the time, we have no idea, but thinking back on it now, we definitely see, um, that Norman probably circled back around and went back to the house because mother had come out on him, essentially. Yes, and even more confusion is created, even though it's possible the next scene gives away the end, but mm -hmm. it's also possible that it doesn't because it does create a lot of confusion uh, just because of the finishing line of what the police officer says because Sam and lila go to the sheriff's office and or his house in the middle of the night and i love he's just coming down the stairs and he looks so grumpy and he's just like yeah so mad they woke him up and yep. we do learn a lot in this scene because we learned there was like bad he says there's bad business down there about 10 years ago and he also says that norman's mother has been dead for 10 years right and we learned that supposedly the mother used strychnine to poison herself and her boyfriend and norman found them in bed which i think is a really prominent point that they were found in bed 
and this is supposedly the only case of murder and suicide they have in this little town. But what, what causes confusion is he says, so who's buried out in the cemetery if the mother is supposedly still alive? And another thing that I want to bring up is this is when Norman moves his mom down to the cellar and it's a similar bird's eye shot of the Arbogast shot. Um, mm-hmm. But n- did you notice how Anthony Perkins, his like hips were swaying in honestly a very feminine way when he was going up the stairs? I don't know if you noticed that. Hmm, I didn't notice that, no. Next time you watch it, interesting, yeah. watch how his hips move up the stairs and just the way he like kind of like holds his arms and he's going towards his mother's room and I was like, I think this is like a very subtle acting choice, a brilliant acting choice from Anthony Perkins, how he's getting into that mom mindset right. as he's going up the stairs. Right, yeah, and I do kind of want to mention, the book does bring this up. Now, I don't know if this has anything to do with this scene, but the Anthony Perkins is actually uh, gay. And it's kind of interesting because in the book it brings it up. And let me pull up my notes where I talk about that. Because See, I always thought that was a possible rumor. Is was yeah, it confirmed? It's it just said well the book just says that Anthony Perkins is gay, but even as the character trait is almost perfect because of that touch of femininity that he has to play with mother. Mm, okay. So the book seems to make it uh makes it seem like it's a real I guess a fact. Yeah, but, I, I had heard yeah. things. Um I'm pretty sure he was married with a wife because his daughter has acted in a number of films right. and so I, I did I felt like I did hear something like later on he it, he did you know come out as gay or it was found right. out. I know he contracted AIDS but not from being gay. It was from a like a bad blood transfusion. I think that's what killed him. Okay, yeah, I think I do remember hearing about that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, do you, I find it interesting that Sam and Lila go to church together? Well, I don't think they go to church. I think they just go there because that's where the sheriff is at because they walk up as the service is ending and they meet up with the sheriff. Yeah. Sam doesn't strike me as a guy who would go to church because he's been, well, just because of what he's been sneaking around with, uh, Marion. But I don't know. I thought they did go to church. And to me, it does seem like that these two could strike up a relationship in the future. I know that's how it happens in the book. Mm -hmm. Um, but that's not alluded to in the movie. I just was like, huh, okay, they're at church, I guess. And yeah, the the policeman and his wife are there, so that's probably why they were there. Yeah, and uh, it's also kind of interesting, too, that the sheriff and his wife are going to church, you know, quote-unquote, to cleanse themselves or whatever. And it's It's kind of also kind of interesting, too, because mm-hmm. they know that Norman Norman's mom does die because they were there when they were there for the burial. Right. They mentioned that in the conversation, too, so... Yeah, they yeah they said we were there for it. We knew what happened, and right. he. I mean, yeah, he was the cop that went out there and found them dead. Yeah, you know, right. And right. Um, he also says in this conversation after church, he said, "I went there and I looked everywhere, and I couldn't find a a woman or a mother or anything." Mm-hmm. And Norman, that's because the night before, Norman hid her down there, and he said he did that once before, and I'm pretty sure. That is when, because they say they he buried a weighted casket and he hid the mom down in the cellar. So I'm pretty sure that's what that is referring to. Yes, they do mention that at the end with the psychiatrist. 
that he that it was a weighted coffin that was buried, not mother. And it's interesting because um, Sam and Marion believe that Norman somehow found out about the money from Marion, which is kind of illogical because why would she reveal to this complete stranger out there by herself about the money unless it kind of came about by accident? But they believe that Norman knocked off Marion and took her money to make right. a new life for himself. And I'm sure that kind of does make sense to them because they're like you know he's lonely and he's a hermit how else you know it'd be a great opportunity for him to you know get out from under his situation but right they come to realize it doesn't make sense and and he does not have the money at all right yeah and it's also kind of interesting because it's not about the money like the money in this story is just a plot device that's quickly dismissed yeah and it's quickly dismissed i mean it's a plot device, but it's not something that is what the movie is all set around. Right. It's like what I mean by that is that's not the incentive for everyone to go after. It's not and Norman's incentive is not that he wants the money. It's just because he can't help it when his mother personality comes out. Everybody else is is a, kind of about the money and why their sister disappeared or their lover disappeared. Where Norman is just, I can't help it. I have a different personality in me that takes over and that's and that's why he picks up the the newspaper with the clumps of money in it and just tosses it in the in the trunk and then closes the trunk he didn't care what was in it he doesn't need to know what's in it he just he's trying to get rid of the evidence yeah exactly and so i uh i think it's there's like a there's a multiple creepy shots coming up here and just like this whole sequence is very eerie when Lila is approaching the Bates house and the camera keeps uh, cutting back and forth between Lila and the house and it just keeps getting closer and closer on both of them. This is just so creepy and macabre. It always gives me chills every time yeah, I watch and, it. And yeah, even the the house of Psycho itself is just creepy looking. Yeah. Like like I said before, it's up on a hill. It's like it's overlooking you know, the motel and it just kind of gives this this powerful vibe just because of how big it is it's very ominous and yeah if you if you take the universal studio tour it's right there on their property so i've seen it in person and driven by it oh man Uh, so jealous it's really cool uh you definitely got to go sometime but this uh, of course hitchcock is the master of suspense as we said and this scene just builds so much suspense when lila's looking around and Sam is trying to keep Norman occupied. And right. I just love how she's looking through the house. And she's not really sure what she's looking for. And neither do we. Because right. as the audience, we're really confused about what she's going to even find. Because we know the mother's in the cellar. And we know Marion's in the swamp. Right. But we do get some very, honestly, um, disturbing things in this scene. Um, I love the jump scare of her seeing herself in the mirror. Yeah. That was brilliant. Yeah. I love that. But some things that are really um, kind of odd are the bed is sunken in from the body Yeah, there's a huge there. divot in the bed. Huge dent yeah. from, I'm sure, that body laying there for 10 years. I don't understand. This is the one thing that I don't understand. I have like kind of a theory and explanation for everything else. But um, Lila goes to look at the vanity with uh, with a mirror that eventually scares her, and she sees like those hands that are crossed together, like a cast 
of hands mm-hmm. and I don't know she's really like drawn to that but I don't understand the point of it so yeah I've always wondered that too I'm not entirely sure what the point of that is Right, I don't know either, and we do also cut back to Norman, and I mentioned this line earlier, but he says, this place happens to be my only world. My mother and I yeah. were more than happy. Right, Very yeah, creepy. and you can tell Sam is drilling this guy. He the is. longer this phone goes along, you, the more you kind of see Norman kind of degrade, and he's getting more and more paranoid, you know, that there are more people entering my life, or, you know, getting in front of me and in in me and my life, you know, stuff like that, and he... He's, you can see him, especially in this scene, visibly, he's, like, tapping his finger, and he's just, like, shaking, you know, and he's just, like, not really responding very much like he used to. He's very, very different now than he was when he, when we first met him when he was with Marion. He's visibly shaken. Like, he's he's worried. He's very, very worried. Right, because these people are continually intruding upon his life, and he's like, who are these intruders that's caused this chain right. reaction? And... Uh, eventually he hits Sam over the head because he becomes so upset. But before that, we do actually get a look of Norman's room. And yeah. I find it, I, I just find this to be so creepy. And there, I just feel like there's so much to explore. But Hitchcock is always keeping us in suspense. And he's not going to take too much time to like give us all the answers and mm-hmm. look into everything. But we see Norman's room where he has been sleeping because the bed looks like it's been slept in. It's been untouched since his childhood. Just again, it shows, you know, his fractured mind with all of these things and his childhood persona. Because she's like, she notices this little stuffed animals and this like kid's record player. But we also find there's something... The audience doesn't know what it is, and we, we really don't know what it is, but we do find mm-hmm. something incredibly mysterious is when she's looking at his bookshelf, and she picks up a book that just has a little symbol, you know, I'm assuming like this little meaningless symbol on it, but it has nothing on the spine and nothing on the front. No title, no right. author, nothing. And right. when she flips open the book, like you can just see her eyes kind of like open and look very kind of surprised or concerned. Yeah. And it's a really big mystery that I'm, I was really intrigued by. And I know in Psycho, the book, uh, what she finds in these, he has like a number of these books with like no titles. is like some really odd pornography. Mm-hmm. It's like really kind of bizarre things, bizarre pornographic things. And I'm sure that's what is in the book she sees. It has no title and no cover, but I'm sure it's like something very dark and bizarre. And Norman is clearly already perverted because we see him spying on her. And he has this talks about being a lover to his mother. And it's just been them and clearly obsessed with that kind of stuff. So it's just a really good mystery. I love that. And I love how, you know, nowadays it's like they have to like show everything and give the mystery away. And this is something that Seven does in the end. You know, what's in the box? Oh, yeah. We don't ever see what's in the box. But right. I, and I love that. I love that we don't ever see what's in this book. But we just know there's. it's just very disturbing what is behind this facade of this yeah. house that's been kept up. There's, like, really dark things within there. Right. Yeah, and at this point, you know, and I do kind of want to bring up, too, that the way that Hitchcock paces his uh, – scenes of suspense because the first one we get which is with the uh 
which with the shower scene, we do kind of get that build up from her leaving with the money into her getting in the shower. But the but it kind of the suspense kind of fizzles out once they have the conversation with her and Norman. But then it immediately just kind of goes through the roof again once she steps into the shower, and the only sound effects we hear are of the water splashing. And then of course you hear the door open, and then that whole scene takes place. But then we also have one of similar length with Arbogast, which is with him walking up the stairs, you know. And then now we have this one that goes on for at least five to ten, about five minutes-ish of just building and building and building until the final reveal that Norman is mother. And the reveal is simultaneously so satisfying because it happens so quick. Because Violet's upstairs and then walks downstairs and then... Norman is coming back, runs up to the house after knocking out Sam, and she runs down to the cellar, unbeknownst to her that that's where Mother is at. And then, of course, the reveal, almost simultaneous reveal of her, like, turning around Mother, and it's just the the rotting corpse. And then Norman runs right in and is going to kill her before Sam intervenes. And it's just so oddly satisfying just to see it all kind of come together, but still have that mystery of, What? Because we see Norman, of course, dressed up as mother. And it's just, it's just so, it's so well done with Hitchcock and how he reveals information at just the right time. That that scene, especially like leading up because, yeah, there's all this tension building. When we see that shot of like through the front door curtains or whatever, we see Norman running towards the house. I am yeah. always like white knuckling my seat because I'm always, I, I don't know, I'm always generally frightened, especially upon first viewing. I was like, oh my gosh, he's coming and he's going to find her and this is going to be so bad. Yeah. And I didn't I didn't know the – well, here, I think this is how it happened. I think there was like some like um, montage cut on TCM or AMC and it like showed that like skeleton thing, you know? Mm-hmm. And – or maybe if it was either a montage thing or when I was – I don't know. I was probably like – 12 or something really not too long i don't know i was probably a young teenager not too long before i i saw psycho and i was just channel flipping and i came upon it on amc or tcm and i kind of saw this scene or i saw like somebody like standing there with a knife and i had no idea what was going on yeah so i actually saw that but then when i saw it within context of the movie i was like Oh my goodness! This is this is the end. This is a big reveal. Whoa! I had yeah no idea what was going on, but it's it's really uh, creepy. And if you listen closely, you can hear the scream of the mother's voice saying, "Ah, Norman! Like ah, Norman, help me!" You know, it's kind of cool too because Lila turns Mrs. Bates and like touched her, and then the corpse just kind of turns it by itself, yeah. and it faces the audience. You know, and then she screams and then whacks the light bulb and it's swinging back and forth. And Norman comes in, you know, and it's about to kill her. But then Sam intervenes and, like, you know, takes takes him down. And the wig kind of pulls off of him, you know. And he's, like, trying to, like, struggling, you know, trying to keep, trying to get break loose of Sam. But that's it, you know, that they've caught Norman, like, basically red-handed at this point, And they turn him in. And it's just, like, I don't know, this scene is just so, so satisfying to see because it all kind of comes together in the end. It's like, okay, now it kind of makes sense you know because now we understand who exactly is doing all these killings but yeah it's just so so good it's a huge twist and it's one of the most iconic twists in cinema history yeah and this is why hitchcock didn't want people talking about it afterwards or even coming into the movie late 
because they wanted them mm-hmm. to get the full story and get the full effect. So right. yeah, it's a huge twist. It's uh, on the level of Luke, I am your father. <laughs> you yeah, know? exactly. Those, are, those like those big reveals where it's like, no, whoa, what? But, exactly. Yeah. And so, how do you feel about the next scene we get, where it's all winding down, and we get a huge exposition scene, kind of just totally explaining Norman's like what it, what's going on with him and whatnot. I don't know. I'm interested because this movie really has not done any of that so far. It's never explained anything to the audience. The audience has discovered everything for themselves. Right. And there's been a lot of visual storytelling, you know, show, not tell. That's been the whole premise of this movie. But at the very end, I don't know, because this is one of the very first kind of psychological thrillers like this or whatever you want to classify it as horror movies where we have something of the kind. But so I can understand this all being relatively new to audiences, whereas in today's age, we don't need somebody explaining to us the psyche of Norman, I guess, if that makes sense. We would just be like, oh, yeah, okay. And I believe that's because of films like Psycho. We would even think that in the first place. But eh, I don't know if we really need all of this exposition where we just sit there and he tells us everything. Right. And, yeah, the book does bring this up. And essentially what happened... Well, I'll say this before I give my, my answer. But in the book, Thomason talks about... I can't remember if they finished writing or if they finished shooting. But they felt as if they needed somebody to explain to the audience what they just saw. Because at the time, a normal audience goer would not know anything about a multi-personality disorder or right. anything of this or anything like that, you know. It, they needed somebody to explain to the audience what exactly happened. So they hired a dude... Uh, to play the psych, the psychiatrist, and he kind of comes in and just explains everything in detail what we just saw. And now at the time, it, I'm sure that was much needed because there were not many films that depicted this, and I'm sure the multi personality disorder wasn't necessarily something that was common knowledge. Um, but yeah, nowadays um, we don't need this scene. I would almost go as far as to say it could almost completely be cut. Maybe there are a couple of things in the scene that are important, but almost you could almost cut out the scene entirely and you could just leave the rest of the film up to really think for yourself. Now that you've seen everything, you could really think, okay, now what did I just see? Because now we've seen enough films that we know a bit more, like the, audi- the general audience will know a bit more knowledge than the audience back in 1960 of what exactly is going on here, you know? So... For me personally, I this is one of my biggest problems with Psycho. One of my very few problems with the movie is that this scene, although very nice and convenient to have, we don't necessarily need it in 2017. Because, like I said, we could just let it, leave it up to the audience to figure it out. Because this movie is... It isn't too complex, if you really look back on it. Um... It's it's more or less, the scene is there so that way the audience can know what, what we just watched. But I do think that it could, I wish there was an alternate cut that was released that kind of removed that last scene and made it like an optional ending. Because I would love the film so much more if I had, I, I love the film all the more if I, that scene wasn't in there or if I could just, you know, optionally watch it. Yeah. But I'm sure back in the day, if that scene was not in there, this film would not have been as well known 
if the scene had been cut, it wasn't there. No one would, I feel like it wouldn't have gotten the publicity, but now, of course, with the scene in it, with it, everything being explained, now it all makes sense, you know? Yeah, that's true. And, I mean, it's really not that detrimental to me because most movies of the time, you know, there's a lot of dialogue, a lot of talking. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it. they normally wanted to make sure the audience understood why everything happened and, you know, made sure the types of film we get today... Like Inception, for instance, where the ending is ambiguous, or a lot of these other ones like Shutter Island or something like that. Right. With an ambiguous ending, not saying this is really an ambiguous ending, but those really weren't too common back then. It was pretty straightforward storytelling. My only problem is this kind of does contradict the entire film's mode of storytelling for the audience. As I just said... Because it's always been show, not tell. Very little dialogue. Nothing is really explained. The only other, pretty much the only other scene of exposition that we get, which is kind of saved by the confusion, is when Lila and Sam are talking with the sheriff and his wife in their house. And then they explain the history of what's been going on there for the past 10 years. But then there is still a an aspect of mystery so not everything is completely explained to the audience whereas this is totally explained to the audience and there's even kind of like questions or answers like oh it must be a transvestite no not not necessarily you know and thankfully the it's very well written thankfully and it's very well acted uh this is the officer from west side story and he does a really good job i was just surprised when we get this whole movie that show not tell and then all of a sudden we're going to sit here for another couple minutes and he's going to explain norman to us when lila didn't get any of those answers looking through the house and neither did we and we're left up to this mystery but then it's a little demystified but like i said it's really not that detrimental to me at least it didn't pull a blade runner u.s in international theatrical cuts on us where they had the terrible narration come in and explain everything right so thankfully like i said it's really not that detrimental and doesn't really um, mess anything up but we do get this amazing ending monologue which is just incredible it's a slow zoom onto norman who has been totally taken over by the mother but you still see his fractured personality because a lot of the things he's saying just don't make sense because Mm -hmm. Okay, the mother has totally taken over, right? But yes. she but then she says he was going to tell them that I committed all those murders and I couldn't have him doing that, but she's the one incarcerated unless she's not aware of it, unless she thinks Norman is somehow incarcerated, which he really is incarcerated in his mind. And then she right. says like he was always bad and he was always doing this, like he really did commit the murders, but then she alludes to that she also is the one that did it. So we just, I don't know, we see like they're, they're, the personality is blending, but they're still also mm. not complete. Their stories aren't straight, which makes total perfect sense. It's just so incredible. And right before we cut to the car, you, did you notice that the mother's like decrepit, you know, skeletal face is like briefly superimposed over his super eerie yes. smile? brilliant it's yes. so frightening to see that they're they become oh, one yes is yeah this scene this is one of the most iconic scenes not too far behind the shower scene 
is because, and even both cinematography-wise and just the way that it's all, like, revealed to the audience, because framing-wise, Norman starts off on the very right side of the frame, and then yeah. as the camera zooms in closer, he slowly gets towards the middle, and then right at the very end, of the, right, at the very end right before it cuts to the fly on his hand, he's in the very center of the frame. And then, of course, we have that famous line of, I'm not even going to swat that fly. They'll see, they'll see, and they'll know, and they'll say, why, she's never heard a fly. And then at that point, Norman kind of looks, he's looking down at this point, and he looks up at the audience, like just his eyes, and then it, yeah, it cross fades from there to the car with the mother in the middle, and it's, oh, it's just, oh, it's so good. This is why I love this movie. Super It's because this last shot is so freaky, but so impactful that it, it makes it just makes the movie even better watching it with this last scene and this is why i love this movie so much is because of how impactful it leaves what kind of an impact it leaves on the audience when it's finished and the last thing we see is the car marion's car being pulled out of the swamp yeah so good it's it's amazing and i can't even imagine being an audience member in 1960 when there's you know no such thing as all of these crime forensic shows on TV, you know, mm -hmm. the market is just saturated with these, you know, psychological thrillers or psychological horror, you know, right. it's just totally saturated with it now. Whereas right. back then that was, you know, maybe there are some kind of like mystery novels that had a bit of it to it or whatnot. I mean, clearly Robert Block, there was the book, so people could have read the book before they saw the movie. But right. regardless, if you just come into this fresh when most cinema at this time is pretty tame and, you know, maybe it's a Humphrey Bogart mystery movie or something, but nothing this dark, this disturbing, this unsettling, and even for today. I mean, like like you and I are more used to it, but I just would love to be a audience member in 1960. and. I mean, I kind of was that way when I did first see it, but even then, it's still a different world that, you know, we grew up in than back in 1960, but just a groundbreaking film ahead of so, so far ahead of its time, and it still holds up today as a true masterpiece, right. and people argue the best horror film ever. Um, yeah, and the book amazing. does go on to talk about the film's legacy and it has this really, really good, this really good paragraph. I'm going to read it. I had took a picture of it, and it goes like this. It says the site. The title is called Psycho's Film Legacy, and it says films are not intended as a stepping stone path, but so many new films follow a direction and in an energy that have worked in the past. Psycho uncovered new clues about that journey that we did not care too much about the nice people, the ones we liked, but that that we were determined not to be surprised by the blood and its flow. We know these things will come, and that we are mesmerized by some of the people who do damage. It is as if the medium itself, sitting in the dark and looking at the shining light, was meant to teach us that. The new tone in cinema said, be believe less in the story and its characters, but study the game that it, but study the game being played. And then it goes on to talk about the legacy that this film left, and it's saying that it left such a big impact on a film that it came with exploitation and then all these other films started like, copying off of it. And of course we got, I think four sequels to the, to psycho all dealing with Norman. And it says that at the time, the violence we see on screen and during the movie was unthought of 
for you know for Psycho. But since then, it's been exploited, and now we use CGI to simulate worse violence than Psycho had to offer. But the difference now is that we don't have the connection to those actors and actresses who are being killed that we like we do in Psycho. It's more senseless. Psycho didn't fix the issue with American cinema, which was already that was already in the decline when this movie came out, but it led to a darker age in film in the 70s, also known as the Silver Age, where movies didn't really have as many happy endings. And mm. so that the movie all, book all talks about that. This is like all from like the last few tap the last few chapters. But yeah, that see that that sequence, that paragraph I read is one of my favorite parts of the book is just talking about like this is how much this film has impacted cinema. It was new then and technically is still new now new now but it's been exploited to the point that it's that things that are copying off it are borderline almost not real cinema at that point absolutely that's 100 percent true and that's really well well written and brings up a lot of mm-hmm. really important points especially i especially appreciated what he had to say about modern cinema is lacking the connection to the characters yeah because like i mentioned with the saw films or these other just stupid horror films that are just total garbage lately i mean there's a few diamonds in the rough that come along once in a while but even then they still don't establish the connections with characters like we get right in psycho or even in halloween or Rosemary's Baby, something like that, where we really do establish it's it's really, you know, about the characters. And I brought that up earlier, how, you know, all these movies today rely upon CGI to, mm-hmm. you know, kind of mask the story and whatnot, whereas back then there was no such thing. You had to rely upon acting. The movie was make or break upon the acting and the story, of course, and how well the two could function together so right uh, this is just a true classic example with the right people like film can just be such a magnificent blend all all together it's just so incredible yeah not just to say that cgi is bad because we just reviewed 2049 we both loved it i mean you can go back and listen to what if we can you can go back and listen to us pour over that movie but it's in that film, they use it. They use CGI in a way that actually means something. And what the book is relating to is that the way that it's used now is just for exploitation, just because well, we can't do this and actually harm anybody or or anything like that. We can't use practical effects. The easiest way to go about it would be use would to use CGI. And and yeah, luckily back back then when Psycho came out, that was not even a thought to use that kind of stuff. So yeah, it, what you said is very true. It's this this movie also has kind of been just exploited the crap, and it's just even though it has no, it's one thing to pay a homage to the film, like in the list of movies that I that I listed earlier in the podcast that have definitely taken things from Psycho and used it, like Double um, Seven, Doctor No, or The Shining, or things like that. And there's definitely similarities between um, things that they've done and what Psycho has done, but now films just. They seem to copy off a lot of things, but never to a point where it means something. And then, of course, we have characters, like I said before, that just die senselessly. And it there's no just no connection. And that's just kind of the sad thing about the current state of cinema is that that not to say that there aren't still good films being made, but that we there isn't as much connection to the audience except that, oh, this film is fun, you know, 
Whereas this one, it may may or may not be fun for somebody, but you get a connection to every single one of the characters. And like I said before, the characters in this movie are so solid. Even even the ones that only have a 30-second window of acting on screen, even they have their own personality, you know. And so, yeah, it's that's why Psycho, I love Psycho. That's why, and I didn't mention this before, but this is one of my favorite movies of all time just because of how well it's made. I mean, it's not super deep and everything, but it's, and I'll explain in my, my final thoughts of the movie, why exactly I think of everything, but it, the movie is just so well made in a way that it really connects with me that I find it to be so, so good. So Alan, what is your rating and recommendation for Psycho? Yeah, um, I'll give my rating here in a second, but there's one, like I mentioned in 2049, one of the ways, well, I think I'm, I think I might have briefly mentioned it, but I'll say it again. One of the ways that I find out that one, that a film is one of my favorite movies is by the way that it impacts me as like a person with Psycho. This was the movie that got me into loving film. And I remember the day we watched it at your house. Um, I remember walking away from Psycho and my mind was just blown because at the time I was thinking, oh, I kind of want to go into psychology you know, that's kind of interesting. And of course, I knew at that point before this is before I went off to college that I was going to go and probably going to go to computer science and stuff like that. But it, my love for film was just so amateur at that time. And then we watched it. I remember my eyes were just open. I was like, holy cow, because not only was it really good cinema, but it was just good horror, like just in general. And like I said before, one of my only problems with the movie is that ending scene. And that's not really even an argument I can make now because at the time that scene was very much needed, but not so much anymore. It it's just because the film as timeless as it is, that ending scene is meant for the audience back in the sixties. But now we've kind of grown and uh, us as an audience are kind of think of the film a bit differently. And now we have, now we can really think about things a lot deeper than we could back then from our level of understanding. But yeah, no, I absolutely love this movie. In fact, I even bought, a steelbook of it, and it's one of my favorites because it's it, most of it's pink, and it has the house in the background, and it has the blood from kind of streaming from the house down the drain, and the cover it says "Psycho," and on the back it has the knife, and it says "We all go a little mad sometimes," and I love it so so much, and yeah, this is easily one of my favorite films just of all time. Not only the way that it you know impacted me as a person, but also just how it impacted cinema in general because so many things have pulled off of psycho and just saying the name psycho everyone's like oh i know that movie you know it's just become a staple in this american film and has made such an impact everywhere else and for me yeah this is definitely a 10 out of 10 for me i'm gonna give this the highest of recommends it there are some things in it that some people may not think about that are like the scene where harbor gas falls down the stairs or maybe even the shower scene when uh when marion dies they may think those are kind of strange, but for me, those are so as impactful maybe as if they were back then just because of the way that Hitchcock builds his films and edits them in such a way that this all builds to one thing and that he's so, so good at all that kind of stuff. So yeah, 10 out of 10, highest of recommends. Yeah, Psycho is such an iconic film, clearly probably the most well-known by Alfred Hitchcock, even though pretty much everything he's done has just been an incredible gem of cinema. Uh, I own the Alfred Hitchcock collection, and I just realized yesterday there's an Alfred Hitchcock movie with Joseph Cotton and Ingrid Bergman that I'd never heard of called Under Capricorn. 
So it's just cool to discover. I haven't seen every Hitchcock movie. Um, he's got a lot out there, but his movies are such a treat, and Psycho is incredible. And it's definitely a departure from, especially like his previous work, like right before that, um, North by Northwest, totally different. Uh, totally different because by that point he was shooting in color and this he chose to shoot in black and white. And just the horror and suspense of this movie and the characters and everything we talked about is such an incredible blend, just catching lightning in a bottle. Um, it's a, it's a true classic and it's also a true, uh, horror, psychological thriller, just suspense classic. And I absolutely give Psycho 10 stars out of 10. This movie is so amazing. It receives the highest recommendation. Um, mm. And even if you're not uh, like a horror fan per se, uh, I would say go out and watch it because there's just so much more to the movie than the slasher aspect of it. And it's really not a slasher per se, especially in the vein of what we know slashers as today. Yeah. Um, and even what Halloween was, really. Uh, it, it's a lot more than that. Uh, it's just an incredible film. And yeah, I don't think there's like anything more that I could say about it just because it's, it's that great. Right. And I know that we had talked about... Uh, I know that we had talked about it a couple podcasts ago about the director's vision versus... Oh, this is in the Blade Runner podcast. We talked about the director's vision versus the studio's vision. And as I stated earlier, uh, Hitchcock had to put up quite a fight to get this movie out and to get it produced because of the content that was going to be in it. And at the end, they said, okay, if you take 60% of the, of the ownership of this movie, we'll take the 40%. Yes. You can make what you need to make, you know, of course, as long as it passes the, the production code. And he did. And now look what that got him. Of course, then, as I said in that podcast, it's not always the case. But when you have an expert filmmaker like Alfred Hitchcock, who who can make this kind of a film just because he has the freedom to, even though he was under an extremely low budget, it becomes something like this, an iconic classic. And yeah, this just kind of one of the things of kind of beating the system and showing the audience what they what they need to see, not what they want to see. Well, thank you, listeners, so much for joining us for our very special uh, Halloween October thirty first podcast. We love doing these special podcasts for October. Make sure to look for those in the years to come. And uh, we hope you got some good candy and you enjoyed a good horror film. And you had a great Halloween. We had a great Halloween joining you, discussing Psycho. Mm -hmm. uh, let us know in the comments like what you enjoy watching on Halloween. Because these are some of our favorites that we enjoy watching on Halloween. We really appreciate your listenership and uh, for subscribing and uh, just listening all over the world. That's so amazing. Uh, if you enjoyed this podcast, make sure to share it with your friends and just get the word out about Silver Screen Guide. We love doing this, not just for ourselves and the discussion between the two of us, but we love sharing it with others. And we love bringing to light what we've noticed in these movies that we watched. And there's probably stuff that you've noticed too, and we want to hear from you about that. Uh, so make sure to uh, tell people about us, uh, share us on social media. And make sure to just stay subscribed so you can make sure to always get the uh, best podcasts about movie reviews. 
And we uh, also will do TV show reviews. We did just one about The Legend of Zelda. And we will do film discussions and analysis and also just discussions relating to something about movies in general. And we do have the schedule up on the website. So make sure to go check out the schedule so you can uh, see what's coming. And make sure to subscribe through email. So that way you will always get everything that comes out. And you'll make sure to never miss it uh, when that email comes to you on Friday. But thank you again. Trick or treat. Happy Halloween, listeners. Until next time. Because these are some of our favorites that we enjoy watching on Halloween. And we just uh, really... We are... (laughs) Yeah. <laughs>